Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Welcome, friends, to another r slash nuclear revenge video. Today, we've got a great story getting back at a cheating boyfriend. But first, make sure to hit those like and subscribe buttons down below so you never miss any of my daily videos. That said, our first story of the day is I got revenge on my cheating boyfriend. This actually happened last year, but it still makes me wonder what I was actually thinking and also laugh out loud because the way things turned out was just too wild to be true. But it did happen, and I'm so happy I got to get my revenge on the cheating, lying scum. I met this guy, let's call him F, when I was interning at a digital marketing company and he was like the floor manager of this fast food restaurant I used to have my lunch break at. I took an instant liking to him the very first time I saw him because he'd come out to address some drama involving a very nasty Karen and a very fed up waiter. The way he put the situation out was impressive and call me stupid but I found that so attractive especially when he smiled at me as he was heading back to his office, which was pretty much a shoebox space behind the order counter. After that particular day, it almost seemed like he knew exactly when I was coming to have lunch, and he found a reason to come say hi to me and my coworkers, two other girls and a guy. My coworkers were always telling me that he liked me pretty much from the beginning, but I wasn't convinced because he seemed to act that way with everyone who came into the restaurant. He was the standard nice guy, you know, the type that remembers things about regulars, gives kids a little meal toy, even though there's nothing mentioning that on the menu, and hands out leftovers to the homeless people on the street corner. But at the same time, he was a huge flirt, and he didn't try to hide it. I guess his niceness cancelled that out, and everyone just chalked his flirty character up to him being overly nice. So I didn't think too much of it when he started flirting with me. It started with the wrong order. Or at least I thought it was when my order for tacos became a plate of pasta. But it wasn't until I stepped up to the counter to complain that I realized F was the one waiting to attend to me and he had apparently switched my order so I could approach the counter. We had a quick laugh, he gave me my actual plate, and he asked for my name. I got back to my table where my lunch buddies were ooing and aahing and I didn't give much thought to the whole thing. Then it became like a routine thing. We'd come in for lunch, he'd call my name from across the room and stop by to say hi. He eventually learned the names of all of my lunch buddies and rearranged his schedule to take his lunch break with us. But I still didn't think it was anything special. Call me dumb, but I honestly think that was my angel trying to help me avoid a messy situation. But I didn't realize it until much, much, much later. After a month of hanging out during lunch, I was celebrating graduating from college and getting promoted to a junior level at work. My lunch buddies had invited F over to the bar we were meeting up at without telling me. I was shocked when he stepped in, but it was a pleasant surprise because after happy hour, tons of shots and tone-deaf singing from my friends and co-workers, he and I headed to the bar to order a last round for everyone, and while we waited for the bartender to serve us, He leaned over to tell me congratulations. I turned to respond and he kissed me on my cheek and gave me a small gift bag I hadn't noticed him carrying. There was no further argument at that point. His intentions were clear as day and he was the sweetest person ever with no flaws in sight, which should have been a blinding red flag, but I wasn't thinking about that. Long story short, 
We hooked up that night and I was pretty sure I was halfway in love with him already because of how attentive he was and all. One thing that kept hitting the side of my head though was the fact that he didn't bother to use protection and never did for the most part of our relationship. He asked if I was on the pill and then went straight for the home run, but in the moment, I was interpreting this whole thing as him making sure I was fine first. A few weeks later, we were officially in a relationship, and his flirting in the restaurant, at least during the hour I was coming in, came to a very obvious end. And because, of course, my boyfriend is the floor manager, I was definitely getting special treatment. My lunch buddies and I never had to stress about finding a table during lunch hours, and on days that work was particularly stressful, he'd step out with me and sometimes we'd walk, sometimes we'd end up in his car. Listen, you couldn't rain on my parade in the least because I was doing well at work, had my own place with one of my closest friends, and a boyfriend who made women do a double look when he walked by. You can't blame me for not noticing that he was also paying attention and reciprocating their glances. I was on cloud nine, and I was definitely in love with him two months into the relationship. And, like the universe was trying to help me again, things started getting twisted up the very next day after we said I love yous. I had a stinging pain down there and I knew I was being safe with, like, toilet hygiene, but it didn't immediately occur to me that I wasn't being safe when it came to hooking up. I ended up in the ER, and after some testing, I was told I had an STI. And you best believe that I argued it out with them because, as far as I knew, I had a loyal boyfriend. And I was loyal to him too, so I was convinced that diagnosis was a mix-up. And when the symptoms happened several times within a month after the first incident, I thought it was a mix-up again. And then again when it happened by the time we were four months into the relationship. By that time though, I was coming down from the honeymoon high of the relationship, and I wasn't willing to let things slide. He was basically living in my apartment at this point, and I was getting a full blast of his many, many flaws. He would order stuff online, and conveniently not be home when it gets delivered so that I'll have to pay, and then whenever I asked him to pay it back, he'd tell me he's cash-strapped or his ATM would be missing. I couldn't stand it, but it wasn't enough ground for a huge fight, yet. One day, he called me while I was at work and he was having his day off at home. I was super excited because I thought he was calling to plan a night out or something, but he was sounding excited on the phone because his close cousin was around and he wanted to introduce us. Now, his family lives several states away from the city we're both in, so I knew that the chances of meeting them would be very little, at least until we got to a certain milestone in our relationship. So excited was really an understatement when it comes to how I was feeling about getting to meet his cousin. When I got home that night, he told me she had wanted to leave like an hour earlier, but she was waiting to meet me. And when I saw her, the first thing that struck me was how beautiful she was. We exchanged greetings, she promised to visit later, and I thought nothing of the whole meeting because I was just excited that I was moving to a new stage of my relationship with F. For about two months after this, as our relationship hit the six-month mark, his cousin would come around, usually when I'm not home, and leave within minutes or an hour of my return. F explained that it wasn't because she didn't like me, she just worked long hours at night and usually came out to hang with him on his days off because they couldn't find time otherwise, and they were each other's only family in the city. That was a truckload of lies and I ate it all up, and I found out in the most cliche way ever. 
One day, I was at work, and I started feeling really sick, so my team lead sent me home to get some rest. While waiting for my Uber on the sidewalk, a car splashed rainwater on me, and I think my resolve was already pretty weak from feeling ill and the strain that I was starting to feel in the relationship, so by the time I got in the Uber, I was crying. I noticed the driver trying to catch my eyes and check in on me, but I didn't even have the strength to even lift my head. When I got home, I texted F and went straight to bed, splashed clothes and all. Hours later, I woke up and noticed that he'd left my message on red and didn't respond or call. I soaked in a warm bath, got my clothes out of the laundry basket, and piled them in the washing machine. While I was watching them wash and ordering chicken noodle soup, I noticed a pile of F's clothes that seemed to permanently live near the washing machine. Being the doting girlfriend that I was, despite being sick, I decided to sort the clothes and figure out if they need washing or folding. As soon as I grabbed the first piece, I felt something in the shirt pocket and brought it out. It was a tiny Android phone. What was he doing with an Android when he just borrowed money from me to get an iPhone 12? Was the phone his? Or did he find it at work and decided to keep it in case the owner came looking? I was getting ready to dismiss the whole phone situation, but then it vibrated. A quick look at the screen showed an incoming text from someone saved as SOS, and it said, When's your next day off? I miss you already. Text me when you get this. My heart was doing cardwheels to explain the possibility of it not being his phone, but my mind was hard set on the fact that I'd gotten myself in a relationship with a liar and a cheat, but I needed concrete proof, so I decided to wait before making a scene or taking any action. Later that week, he mentioned that he was having a day off soon and would like us to hang out. So I put on an excited smile and told him we could go out later that night since it was a Friday. And then I slyly asked if his cousin was coming around. He said, if you want to hang out with her, we could all go to a bar when you get back from work. I nodded along and when his day off rolled around, I left the house like I usually did for work. But instead of driving to work... I decided to park a few buildings away from our apartment and watch his day unfold. At about 12pm, he came downstairs to pick up a pizza order, and then again an hour later for a Chinese food delivery, which instantly set off my alarms, because he hated Chinese food, or at least that's what he always told me. By 2pm, I saw his cousin pull up to the building, and he was outside to meet her in record time. Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs no deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Immediately, I remembered how many times he'd claimed he was doing the dishes or some other silliness whenever I told him to come help with groceries that I'd bought with my own money. But that's aside. They went inside, and I waited for an hour, enough time for them to get settled before driving back and entering the building. 
I tried the apartment door, but it was locked and I could hear music coming from inside. I decided to try my key and F must have removed the key at the other end because I was able to unlock the door and enter the apartment. They weren't in the living room, but the box of pizza and half-finished chicken chow mein were on the table. I saw the Android phone on the table as well and that answered that question. I took a picture of the table and stepped back out of the apartment to arrive later. When I got back in, like I was just coming from work, the table was clear and only held bottles of beer and chips. What I would typically see after their hangouts. I didn't say anything, but I told them I couldn't go out because I was tired, and that excuse covered my reason for not wanting to hook up with F that night. Meanwhile, the real reason was I could barely stand to sleep in the bed that I knew they'd done stuff in, much more sleep with him hours later. I kept up the act for two weeks, and I kept tabs and gathered pictures of the texts I could find. He had two other babes he was messing around with, and I kept silent, though my anger had hit a tipping point already. Eventually, he had a day off, and I did the same stakeout, but this time, instead of stopping in the living room, I decided to burst open the bedroom door. But before I did that, I wanted to be able to listen to him try to beg his way out of the situation with his expert charm without feeling the urge to give in. So while they were busy in the bedroom I'd paid for and decorated, I unplugged his PS5 from the stand in the living room and dropped it from our second floor window to the pavement below. The crash was loud, but the music playing was louder, so I wasn't shocked that it didn't interrupt them. Then I took the game pads, turned on the warm water setting in the kitchen sink, and left them for a soak. I was barely halfway done with my revenge. I had printed out the screenshots of his Android phone texts and I stuck some of them to our apartment door before taking his car key and heading downstairs to do more damage. I had a small bag of supplies with me, and while I'll admit that I felt a bit manic about doing all these, I was past the point of caring, and I just wanted him to have to deal with all the mess while I healed from the broken heart he gave me. I took out a big bottle of liquid glue from my bag of supplies and sprayed it on his car seats, trunk, and handles before spraying the entire vehicle with pink glitter. Then I took the leftover text printouts and glued them to his windscreen and windows. I took a step back, admired my work, and took a picture from my friendship group chat where I had been updating them about the situation once I found out F was cheating. I went back upstairs and barged in on them in the bedroom movie style. She was scrambling to get covered and he was staring at me wide-eyed so to creep him out further, I told him, I'll leave you two to it. But by tomorrow, I expect you to be out of this apartment and out of my life. And he did exactly as I'd said. I never saw him again. At some point, I expected him to sue for damages, but I guess he figured that it wasn't worth the stress of recounting all the errors he had committed. My friends and I stopped going to the restaurant where he works, and I got another job out of town. I saw his cousin last night at a birthday party for my teammate at work. I could see the fear in her eyes when she recognized me. Knowing I could ruin her relationship by spilling about her past to her new boyfriend, one of my co-workers, but I think I'll hold on to this leverage for now, who knows when it might come in handy. Do you guys blame OP if they tried to tank a good situation that was going on for this girl who played the role of the cousin? Like let's say OP catches wind somehow of this cousin getting a nice cushy job. Would you blame OP if they gave the employers the information they knew and tried to kind of sabotage them? Is that just unhealthy going too far? 
Let me know what you guys think down in the comments. And our final story of the day is my team lead denied my promotion, so I told his wife. Whatever opinions you think you'll have about me from reading the title, just chuck them out the window. Not only do I know that I'm not a hero or a victim in this situation, I also know that I take responsibility for how the situation got as bad as it was. And that I could have handled the ending of things a lot better, but it is what it is. The whole thing is a mess, and I wrote it down for internet strangers to read months ago, but I just got the will to post it. The week after I started working at this organization, I started sleeping with my coworker. It was unplanned, and I didn't realize that my Friday night one night stand was going to be attending a stand-up meeting with me on Monday. But our vibes were cool, and I indulged so much that night that I was still buzzing from the excitement when I resumed work on Monday. Apparently he'd been away on sick leave the week before, while I was onboarding, and because he was feeling better on that Friday morning, he had taken his friends up on their club offer, and the rest was history. But we chose to revisit it, multiple times. After the awkward, are you, do you remember, exchange, we laughed it off exchanged numbers and the next weekend we decided to hang out in a very loaded context we slept together again and continued to do so for three months he got a promotion became my team leader and i told him i felt the dynamics of our situation had changed but he didn't want to let it go so we decided to work around it and he assigned an assistant team leader so that i wouldn't be reporting directly to him and that was good enough for me So we continued to sleep together for another seven months. Then he got a girlfriend. I'm not going to be a hypocrite and say that I didn't date other people while he and I were messing around, but I can boldly say that I didn't truly consider any of them for relationship prospects. As a software engineer and technical writer, work is my first and most vital priority, and he was fulfilling my other needs. I didn't have a lot lacking in between. So I never understood why or how he entered a relationship, and I never got a valid explanation, despite the fact that he married her a year after they started dating. After all, it didn't change things between us, at least that's what he said, or maybe it's what I wanted him to do. Whoever was the driving factor aside, we mutually agreed to continue sleeping together, and I'm not going to lie, I loved it. I was super confident and reassured of his plans concerning me, earth-shatteringly good hooking up and nothing more. But then he switched up the trend of things between us and that's when I think I began to lose touch of the limits and boundaries that apply to the downright horrible thing we were doing. Months after he started dating his wife and longer before he decided to propose to her, he told me he needed to talk to me after we had spent the night together. I thought he was finally deciding to do what was right for his relationship with his partner, but I was way off. He wanted us to spend a day together without it ending in a twirl in the sheets. In full disclosure, I can readily admit that I felt my heartstrings pull when he suggested this. It's hard to date when you're in love with your work, and it seemed like someone who understood me in a professional and personal way was taking an emotional interest in me. Did I forget that he was with a partner and I was basically helping him cheat? No, not in the least, but I was too detached from my emotional core to even consider an alternative to what was going on between us. In my mind, what we were doing wasn't having a direct effect on his girlfriend because he had a very different relationship with her than he did with me. I understand that this sounds unbelievably stupid, but I was too caught up in the feelings and emotions I was experiencing. 
so I was consciously ignoring the obvious. I took him up on his invitation and we went on what can only be referred to as a date. We had a picnic, he packed and brought everything, and then saw a movie, spent an hour on Ferris rides, and he cooked me dinner. When I was leaving for the night, he mentioned that his girlfriend was getting back from an out-of-state event the following weekend, so I was welcome to spend the night during the week. I didn't take him on that offer because it felt too much like being a placeholder, but I saw him every night that week at my own place. To cut the messy tale short, we were a good thing for only both of us and toxic to those around us, but one thing that never got affected directly or indirectly was our work. He kept things civil, and I respected his authority as his assistant acted as the perfect buffer to help us avoid any tempting situations or incidents that can be taken out of context. But then that all started to change after he proposed to his girlfriend. According to him, he only proposed to her to put himself in a prime position for a salary review, a plus for his performance review if HR understands that he's a breadwinner and that nothing between us had to change. I was emotionally dense enough to be okay with this and we continued like that for a while. But once again, he started to act funny. He would call for long hours and rant about how she was a bad partner for not understanding him like I did and how he wished he'd seen the potential for a long-term relationship back when we met at the club and had the one-night stand that turned into a one-year stand. These calls were persistent, and the content was consistent, but I was beginning to realize that he was using me as a crutch. And sadly, at the time, I didn't mind. I could answer a few calls, listen without attachment, and still enjoy his company and our physical attraction, but like most things with this person, it soon hit a startling turn. Our company was splitting the department into two and needed two team leads to handle both aspects of specialization. A fact that everyone but this person was eager about. What this split meant was that someone would lobby for the position of the second team lead and have to work with him. I wasn't too eager about working so closely with him considering our past and then ongoing history, but I was more excited about the prospects for my career, so I knew I was going to do my all to get it. And I thought that this person who'd seen me inside, outside, and sideways on weekends would be able to vouch for me because his recommendation could seal the deal. So I told him about my plans, foolishly, and gushed to him about how I needed his push to get me over the fence. And he was the exact picture of encouragement. So much so that I was beginning to consider the possibility of him finding the courage to end things with her and explore a possibility with me. But things went so far left from that. First were the random queries from the boss's office at HQ. They were asking about my interactions and relationships with male coworkers, especially people like my team lead. I was so confused, but I answered them honestly. And that only led to even more questions that seemed vague on the outside, but scary leading with further inspection. It was obvious that they were conducting an investigation on me, but the reason was unknown only for a while. I was still fielding the unending barrage of questions and trying to figure out the chain of events leading to the obvious investigation, when one question threw me completely off and landed me right in the pool of truth. Have you ever or currently harbor thoughts of exploring a sexual relationship with this person? And I knew my journey to getting a promotion I was more than deserving of was over before it truly began. 
That question was a direct probe into my professional capacity on the grounds of potential harassment. If I answered yes, I'd be implicating myself. If I answered no, it would have been an endless string of questioning that would have ended in a polygraph test. And at that point, my blood wasn't curling blue with hatred when I thought of him, so I knew a polygraph test would be dangerous. After two months of investigation, alongside the interviews I was doing for the position, HR called me to their office and showed me a printed piece of paper that basically contained an email I'd allegedly sent to this guy saying that I wanted to do things to him and I couldn't wait until he'd be rid of the witch. That was just ridiculous because we never exchanged emails that were unprofessional and that was most certainly a setup from the team lead. But in order to get them to listen, I would have to tell them the truth about our relationship and I couldn't deal with all that drama. So I simply gave them access to my email for further investigation and waited for their paperwork or punishment or whatever. And a week after this fake email emerged, they were able to prove that I didn't send it. But I'd been mixed up in so much drama that they had to remove my application for the promotion. At this point, I knew there wasn't a lot I could do about the whole situation, so I just took it in stride. A week after my promotion was rejected, We finally met in the parking lot and his reasoning for doing all that to me was that he didn't want us to be on the same level because it would be too risky for his career. I would be too risky for his career. I never felt more remorse in my life than I did in that moment because this was someone I'd given so much time to without considering consequences and he was willing to put me down just to maintain a misplaced sense of seniority. I felt betrayed and it felt like I needed to make things right, which was the perfect revenge. So I started at the core. I got his wife's Instagram business page and texted her anonymously that her husband was cheating. I added specific details about his body that would make my texts valid. She was already suspicious enough of him on a daily, and I was sure my texts would do enough damage. Then I pulled up my conversations with his unlisted number, where details of our meetups and dirty conversations during meetings were. I compiled them selectively, and by that, I mean choosing only the text that made him the aggressor, while I responded with vague things like, please stop crowding my notifications. I sold HR the story that I couldn't actually be aggressive with my responses, because I was scared that what happened with my promotion would have happened directly to my employment. And because they'd already proved that the email he presented was fabricated, it was easy to convince them that he'd been sexually harassing me and wanted me to lose the promotion to avoid facing the possibility of me coming to HR. Although I knew it wasn't going to be enough information to get him fired, our sexual harassment policy was heavy on power imbalance, and he was suspended for months. Fortunately for me, I got my promotion application reviewed and I'm currently waiting to hear back from the interview board while he's facing possible termination. I wouldn't even mind losing the promotion at this point if it means he'll get to face all that shame of being fired. Honestly, I don't blame OP at all for going along with all this stuff all that time. I mean, I don't know about all the cheating stuff, but as far as the power imbalance goes, I know if I was in a situation where I really liked the person and that person happened to be my boss, I'd probably still rather just want to try to make it work, rather than ever accept that it just can't work, even though it admittedly would have an extremely high chance of being very volatile. Mental neighbor steals an assaults police officer, gets 30 years in jail. 
This happened about two years ago. We own a nice beach house in a small beach community with only a couple hundred of beach houses. We usually go once every two months in the winter and about once every two weeks in the summer due to the weather. But our family always invites friends and other family to stay with us at the house. But once when I invited my best friend, we didn't have any boogie board or wakeboards, so we went online and ordered some from Amazon. But instead of shipping the packages to our regular house, we shipped it to the beach house for convenience. We had Prime, so it would have taken two to four days for them to ship, but they showed up after we left. But before we returned to the house, nice neighbor called us about a car being in our driveway, asking if we were expecting guests, which we weren't. So we asked nice neighbor to take a picture of the license plate and send it to the local police. When we received the news that it was mental neighbor's car in our driveway. Before this incident, mental neighbor was very nice to us and brought gifts. Upon hearing that he had no right to park there, the police go up to his door and confront him, which he denies that it's his car and acts very suspicious. The police come back with a warrant that states that he might be doing illegal drugs and they search his house. Magically, the boogie boards were in his closet. He states that we put them there to frame him. He's arrested for stealing and the use of marijuana, but was sentenced to two months in prison due to being partially disabled and not right in the head. After his return from prison, he starts to lay low, but one time we arrived to find eggs against our house, our motion-activated lights smashed, the railing of our deck smashed, and they tried to bust into our garage. But we secretly installed four security cameras around the property overlooking the deck, garage door, and other parts of the property. With our recordings of him doing this, we went to the police and they came over and arrested him. Before letting the police arrest him, he pulled a knife and stabbed one of the officers and was shot in the arm and taken into custody. He was charged and sentenced to 30 years for assaulting an officer, theft, attempted murder, and property damage. Was it just me or did this story catch me by surprise in the very last paragraph out of absolutely nowhere? Like, I feel like we were going on like an average piece for a story, you know, 5 or 6 out of 10. And then all of a sudden it just was like, BAM, 15 out of 10. Did you guys see anything like that coming or was that a crazy turn of events for you guys too? Let me know in the comments down below. Our next story is from Limp Application. Girlfriend cheated on me, so I took a 2,769 euro Uber ride from Paris to Bialystok. Me and my ex are from Bialystok, Poland. I was in Paris and I broke up with her because someone posted a Snapchat and she was making out with some other dude. Turns out that Runt was doing this for a couple weeks. Well, my flight from Paris to Warsaw got cancelled and the only easy way to get there was by car. I couldn't find a viable bus or train route at the time, mostly they were overbooked. Or there was some other issue, so I took an Uber from Paris to Bialystok. I had card issues when I needed an Uber, so the Uber app in my phone was connected to her card. I was also pissed as heck at my ex, so I didn't really give a crap about her, so I said screw it, let's do it. The first three drivers I tried didn't want to drive that far, but the fourth one let me. He was from Ukraine and wanted to get back to Ukraine anyways, which is pretty close to Bialystok, so this worked out perfectly for it. We drove there, and it took like 17 hours. I got to Bialystok late at night and fell asleep. Holy crap, my ex was pissed. I woke up to like 15 missed calls and 40 texts saying she was going to sue me and ruin my life and I'm a horrible person and I need to pay her back. I told her to screw off and she can go back to sucking my former best friends you know what. 
Everyone else was pissed at me, saying what I did was petty, but I think I'm in the right here. If my ex went around sucking my best friend's you-know-what and making out with other dudes at the party, she deserved it. Now, I don't necessarily blame OP for what they did. As far as legality goes, I don't know how far that's going to be able to go. You know, maybe they had authorization considering it's on their Uber app. Seems like a weak defense to me, though. Best of luck to OP, and I mean, I think we all kind of just understand. By the way, if you're enjoying these stories, make sure to hit those like and subscribe buttons down below so you never miss any of my daily videos. Every single video has awesome stories, like our next story from Usual Grape 6120 OP kills entitled couple with some malicious compliance. The thing happened in the early 1990s. The relevant historical background to this is that Poland hadn't really left the communist bloc just yet. First, free elections happened in 1989, but the process of escaping Russian influence, basically only doing what Moscow or their minions told them to, took a while. And at the time of the story, the police weren't necessarily used to doing its job properly. One of such poorly handled cases was the abuse of my next door neighbor's daughter. I'll spare you the details, just know that the worst thing you can imagine happening to a young girl in such scenario did in fact happen many, many times. There were horrible, horrible people, and I hated them with all my being. I can't stress that enough. To the story, a couple years later, after I'd already moved away, I was visiting my family, and since I was a little early, 6am, I stopped at a gas station I once worked at to chat with my old pals and wait for the sun to get a little higher. We were sitting in a little nook behind the counter, and lo and behold, who would come in if not for the aforementioned neighbors? He pointed at something and went back out to fuel their car. She approached the counter, noticed me and snarked, You're back here? I guess your studies didn't go that well. I say, actually I did. They say, yeah, sure, whatever. How much did he go for? Colleague says, 100. They say, I'm asking him. I say, I didn't come back to work. I'm just visiting. They say, stop lying to me. You're just ashamed that you failed in life. Now come inflate our tires now. Unlike you, we don't have all day to sit and chat. I was so pissed. I legitimately hated them already, but this encounter, after so much time of being away from them, just completely took me off balance. I told my friends, it's okay. I'll just do it. I went with her. I inflated one side correctly. I overinflated the other side so much. I thought the tire was going to explode in my face then and there. They weren't even paying attention to me. The second I was done, and before I could even realize what I had just done, they took off. They crashed a few kilometers down the road. They both died. I've never heard of any investigation reaching the station. I'm definitely going to assume that that outcome was not what OP was actually going for, and was more just trying to cause them, like an expensive headache or something, but uh, maybe in a way, if you believe in it, you could see it as karma catching up to people who years ago did some terrible, horrendous things. All I gotta say is that's like the second story today that just going at a regular pace and then just out of nowhere, it just goes way beyond how you thought it would go. Our next story is from throwaway 901 Cheat and lie about why we broke up? Enjoy being disowned and cut out of your family. This happened between me, 25-year-old male, and my ex, 24-year-old female, over the past few months. I'll keep it short but keep all the important details. To start, the first month, February, was amazing. 
like a dream relationship. We'd been friends for a while before when she suddenly confessed. I had hid my feelings as we were meant to only be friends, so I jumped at the opportunity stating my feelings. The second month was not as bad, only having a single argument as she invited her neighbor over to what was supposed to be a date. After talking it out, we sorted it and made up. The third month was when the problem started. We had planned out a date to be on a Saturday, as she had work on our usual Friday times. I understood and changed the day of the restaurant I booked to then. I hadn't told her as I wanted it to be a surprise instead of the usual home movie, but she knew to keep that clear and address well for the date. Only an hour before the date, she texts me saying that she won't be there tonight as she was going to see a movie with a friend. I was honestly furious as I'd already paid the pre-booking fee and told her over a week in advance. I tried to call her but her phone was off. I called her best friend and he had no idea what was happening either. The next morning, I talked to her and she argues with me saying that I should have told her it was a restaurant meal. After about an hour of argument, she finally admitted that she was wrong for what she did. I accepted that and we took a day break to calm and clear any bad feelings. After that, the relationship started to decline. I stayed the same, but she started to get more and more distant. Eventually, after three weeks of no intimacy, not even kisses, I confronted her asking what's going on. She says she needs a week to think and wanted to be single for that. I told her I don't mind taking a break if that's what she needs, but I don't see why being single is needed for that. She argued it's for freedom, and I realized it's for another guy. We broke up, and she spreads lies about me cheating and being abusive. Thankfully, the friends she spread it to wouldn't believe her, as we'd all known each other for years, her being introduced to them through me. Her best friend had tried to defend me, and she had blocked him, but he knew her friend group. Through them, we discovered that she had been cheating the last three weeks of the relationship, as well as the friend she went to watch the movies with being a Tinder hookup, then left me to start dating a new guy. To nobody's surprise, he blocked her after she tried to start dating him. Soon she dropped out of the university as the guy had uploaded the videos of her cheating to adult entertainment sites and it spread throughout her university. Then I decided I wanted revenge. It wasn't much as I knew her parents and were really close. They knew nothing that was going on and assumed we just broke up. Her parents though are super religious along with her grandmother. So although painful, I found the links to the videos, downloaded them, and took screenshots of all the breakup. Then I contacted her family, saying I had something I wanted to share, created a group chat with her parents, grandmother, and ex-best friend. Then I unload all the screenshots and videos, along with a text message explaining everything that's happened. There was no contact for about a week. Then her ex-best friend filled me in on the situation. She had lost her scholarship due to dropping out of university. Her grandmother, after seeing the proof, cut her from the will and disowned her, followed by her parents and her being evicted from the house as well as support cut off. She's now working a minimum wage job and sharing a home with friends. I think showing the graphic details to the parents and grandparents might be a little extra, but in a situation like that where you were committed to this person and you were sticking by them and you find out they've been doing all that behind your back and standing you up like that and lying to you, I get why OP was passionate enough to go and do that. And our final story of the day is by Gonzalez. My prison pen pal killed her brother. So I met this woman, who I'll call Lucille, on a prison pen pal site. 
I got bored over the summer, so yeah. I didn't really think of posting the story on here since the case was still ongoing, and I didn't want to incriminate her or anything, so here it is. Lucille didn't have many close friends or family members, except her brother. They both had a great home life together, married parents, nice house, good income, but their father came down with cancer, and after his death, their mother remarried, which didn't sit well with Lucille's brother for some reason which caused him to go into a rebellious mean streak that never ended. He became addicted to crack, but Lucille always tried to support him and tried to stay in contact with him. She was too good to him if you ask me. I mean, he only ever called her when he needed money or a place to stay. She always delivered, even left a spare key for him. Honestly quite surprised what happened hadn't happened sooner. At the time, Lucille, like any average human being, had a dog, Lucy. She was a Beagle Terrier mix, incredibly hyper. Of course, her and Lucille were very close. Anyways, after coming home from work one day, Lucille came home to find Lucy dead, and not by natural causes. Lucille didn't give me the details because the wounds are still pretty fresh, but she claims there was blood. She also claims that she knows it was her brother because there was no broken lock, no broken window, No signs of somebody forcing their way in, but some of her meds were missing as well as her laptop, tablet, and a few charging cables. To this day, Lucille doesn't know what caused her brother to do what he did, she just knows it was him. She decided to not press charges, claimed she wasn't as upset with him at the time, and it wasn't until a few weeks had gone by of her trying to contact him for answers that it really got to her. He was ignoring her calls and all she wanted was answers. Lucille said she was very ashamed of how much the death of her dog had affected her. She said she became very impulsive, she started drinking, going to bars a lot, slept around. I guess she just wasn't comfortable in the house anymore. Then she bought a gun, which she claims to be her biggest regret. After about a month, she got a call from him, something about wanting to talk or needing a place to stay. Lucille was drunk during the phone call and doesn't remember much of it. She doesn't know what the freak was wrong with her brother, and quite frankly, I don't know what made him thinking coming back would be freaking okay. All she remembers, apart from the phone call, is shooting him in the face when he walked through her front door. There's just something about the stories today that have to end on such an extreme punctuation. I don't remember ever having a crop of stories before that was just like, Nuclear explosion after nuclear explosion, literally like in the last sentence. And really only in the last sentence. Frankly, what Lucille did here is absolutely insane. But considering to a lot of people, their dogs are like a family member to them. And not only like a family member, but probably like the closest, most cherished family member. Seeing essentially your cherished family member get murdered like that. It wouldn't surprise me if it did make some people snap like that. It's just an unbelievable story. Karen gets burned. Some years ago, I started working for a heavy industrial manufacturing company. I lucked out and got a great supervisor for a boss, Joe. The work was hard, working 12-hour days for 13 days in a row, and then a Sunday off, then back for another 13 days. I was young and didn't mind. It helped my wife and I save up for a house. After about six months, Joe noticed I was picking up on the work pretty fast and promoted me to a group leader position. This came with a raise and increased responsibility that most other workers didn't want. Joe would put me in troubled groups in his department, 
and I would work on general improvements and figuring out the issues. This was a union shop, and the mentality was just to put in your hours. Don't work harder or smarter, just do your time and don't kill the job, was the unspoken motto. After a few years, Joe was promoted to a manager, and he transferred me with him to his departments. While I wasn't a supervisor yet, I was the supervisor in all but name. The supervisors loved it because they never had to leave the office, and I liked it because it was a good learning experience. I made a good reputation and got a lot of respect from workers and from management. Eventually, Joe's areas were doing so well, he was promoted to plant manager. As before, he wanted to promote me with him, this time to a supervisor spot. We talked in length because the only supervisor spot open was working for Karen. Karen was female, a minority, and a member of the LGBTQ community. She was the poster child on the company website of the inclusiveness in the workplace. Literally, her face was the one they used. She was also a freshly minted manager, and Joe was not confident in her abilities. But me being the plucky go-getter with a can-do attitude, decided to take the position. I had an interview with Karen and got to meet some of her supervisors. They were very quiet and reserved. Once I was promoted, I worked in tandem with another supervisor, Chris. Chris was young, had one small child, and his wife was pregnant and a stay-at-home mom. During the first week, everything was going well. I was learning all the employees, getting to know the process, and getting my feeling for the area. During the second week, Chris's wife went into labor and she had a hard time. Chris went on paternity leave for six weeks and I was tossed into the deep end in charge of the whole area solo with 60 employees. I was barely treading water, but I was doing my best. When I would ask Karen for guidance or assistance, she would scoff like it was beneath her and tell me, if I have to do your job, then I don't need you. So I gritted my teeth and worked my tail off. My wife got me a smartwatch and I was averaging 25,000 steps a day trying to keep everything running. We were holding our own and employees all did what they could to help as the satiation was not ideal for everyone. A few weeks in, I was reviewing some quality documents and I noticed that one of the quality gates was not being followed. I emailed the info to the quality engineers and they lost their minds. This was a 4 hour operation on a 20 hour part that we were skipping entirely. Turns out one of the reasons Karen got promoted was because she was running her department so efficiently. Then it came to light that she made the decision to skip this quality process, saving that 20% of time. Except the engineers never signed off on this and it caused massive damage control. The process had to be reinstated and the parts that were never checked had to have warranty extensions. This caused the company to have egg on their face and Karen to look bad. During this time, Karen also became more vindictive. She would openly tell people she would never be fired and could do what she wanted. She would walk the departments and if she didn't like someone, she would make the supervisors write them up by the end of the day. She wanted us to find a reason and if we didn't, she would take it out on the supervisors. For example, forcing the supervisors to stay late to do inventory or something else menial just because she could. She wouldn't let the supervisors make any decisions until she approved. So something like overtime had to wait for her approval and she wouldn't respond until the end of the day, causing the departments to scramble. Then if there weren't enough overtime employees to do the work, she would blame it on the supervisors. While the supervisors knew this wasn't right, We all needed our job and tried to do the best we could for Karen and the employees. We were mainly rodeo clowns to Karen being the bull. 
The first day Chris was back, him and I were both pulled into Karen's office. She started berating me on how poor of a job I was doing, making her look bad, and how I never came to her for help. This made me speechless because of the previous comments she made and the fact that supervisor work was beneath her. After the meeting, I was still a bit stunned, but I put it together that she was about to railroad me out of the company and this was the first step. I called Joe and asked for a meeting that same day. When I got together with Joe, I started telling him about the things that were going on that he had no idea. The harassment, the abuse, the vindictive nature. Ironically, while I was speaking with him, another supervisor called him to complain about Karen as well with the same grievances. Joe was stunned and said he would speak with Karen, but he gave me carte blanche on any open spot in the company starting next day. He really didn't want to lose me. I did a lateral transfer to a different department doing engineering and IT work, and I thought that was the end of it. A few weeks later, I was leaving work, and Karen mentioned that I never turned in my laptop and phone to her. I told her I didn't know I had to, but I could give it to her tomorrow. She smirked and said that she would get it back soon enough. I didn't think too much of it at the time. After about six months, I had my review with my new boss, Jake. The review went great and he was very happy with my work and was a bit surprised at how fast I picked up things. At the end of the meeting, Jake mentioned offhand how Karen tried to intervene in the review and get me fired, but Joe stepped in and squashed it. Okay, Karen, now you pissed me off. After I left Karen's department, the turnover rate went through the roof. The supervisors were quitting at a rate of one every three months. Keep in mind that this is a legacy company that had multi-generations working. Fathers, mothers, sons, entire families. Some areas had three generations working side by side, and yet Karen was rolling over employees and supervisors like a steamroller. Working for her became the kiss of death. I casually mentioned to Joe about the turnover, and he told me he couldn't figure out what was going on. People were quitting without notice, and no one was doing exit interviews. I told Joe that Karen was writing people up to force them out. When they would hand her the resignation letter or two weeks notice, she would tell them to leave immediately and throw away the letter. Then she would tell the HR person that the person quit on the spot and that was the end of it. Joe told me that because of who she was and how high she was, the company wouldn't do anything to her until they had an airtight case. So I went to work. I took the supervisors working for Karen out drinking after work a few times a week and made sure I had my hand on the pulse. If someone was quitting, I made sure they emailed their letter of resignation to Karen and CC'd Joe and HR, stayed for their exit interview, and that they called the company Integrity Hotline for good measure. Things were progressing well, and I had all the supervisors on board except Chris. Chris really needed the job and Karen was not writing him up. Through a stroke of luck, I found out Karen was lowballing his raisings as a cost-saving measure. That's why she wasn't harassing him. When I told Chris, he was furious and he wanted to quit on the spot. I encouraged him to speak with Joe before he leaves. Joe and Chris had a very productive meeting and Chris decided to stay. Now, all the supervisors were on board. Joe brought in an HR bigwig from the headquarters in Kansas and over the course of a week, each supervisor was sent in for an interview discreetly without Karen knowing. By the time the interviews were over, they had emails, texts, eyewitnesses, and a mountain of evidence. This next part I heard from other people, HR, Joe, etc. 
Despite everything, the company wanted to keep this quiet. So they brought in Karen and said they no longer needed her and offered a very generous severance package. Karen being Karen lost it on the HR people. She threatened to sue for discrimination and even called a lawyer. That's when the company pulled out the stack of evidence and rescinded the severance offer. After a few months, Karen found a new job as a plant manager in a different factory, and I found out where. I casually mentioned to the union reps at my factory where Karen was working and suggested that maybe they should give the union at the other factory a call. She was fired within three months for employee harassment. Last I heard, she had to sell her house and move out of the state to find a job. This is just really disappointing to see from somebody that gets in that level of position, but honestly it's not too surprising. Would you guys agree that a lot of times people who move into these managerial or supervisor positions, they often seek these roles out not to help the company or to move up in their career, but to do so because they enjoy the power they have over people? Let me know if you agree with me in the comments down below. And while you're at it, make sure to hit those like and subscribe buttons down below so you never miss any of my daily videos. Every single video has great stories, like our next one by Petr Lebanov, when you have very loyal samurai. In 1701, Asano Naginori and another lord were ordered to arrange a reception for the emperor's envoys. They went to Kira Yoshinaka, a court official, to learn the court etiquette. However, Kira was an arrogant piece of poop and pushed around Asano due to not getting bribed. Asano then lost his temper and wounded Kira with a dagger. Asano has just committed a crime. Violence in the Edo castle was forbidden, and as punishment, Asano committed seppuku slash harakiri. His property was seized, leaving his men with no leader and his family with nothing. 47 ronin out of the 300 of Asano's men vowed to take revenge. Kira knew he would be attacked, so he made sure he was protected. The 47 leader Oishi spent his time drinking, sleeping at brothels, participating in obscene acts, all to lower Kira's guard. And lowering his guard was the worst mistake he had made. Oishi's acts continued for two years, and on January 30th, 1703, the 47 ronin attacked Kira's house and fought all the men. Oishi gave Kira the choice to commit seppuku, but Kira only crouched, trembling. Oishi then killed Kira with the same dagger his master used. One of the ronin, Terasaka, reported what they had done and placed the head on Asano's grave. 46 of the ronin surrendered and committed seppuku while Terasaka was pardoned by the shogun. Imagine being so dedicated to proving that you're not a threat that you spend two years just drinking, sleeping around, doing obscene acts and making a fool of yourself just so that two years later you can finally pull off a surprise attack. What a crazy historical story. And our final story of the day is by Tardinator02, repeatedly break into a cabin? Watch your head. Firstly, this isn't mine, it's from a book, yes I like reading, called Cool at Vine Cadesti, You Only Die Twice, where the writer from what I understood is a morgue worker, where dead people's bodies go, who's been working for a long time. Also, he's been hearing some stories, Secondly, it might be a little exaggerated. It also happened in Finland, so the laws are different. Lastly, we Finns usually go to our cabins only a few times a year, in the summer and in the winter. Now onto the story, shall we? Apparently, there was a thief-slash-robber who repeatedly broke into a Finnish man's cabin. The owner got pissed, 
So he bought some bear traps and put them across the inside of his cabin and left. He thought that the thief would be able to open the claws if he had stepped on it. Well, the thief didn't get a chance. When the owner came back the next winter, he saw the thief dead on the floor with the claws around his crushed head. Apparently, when he broke through the window, he didn't go feet first like a normal person, but he dove in head first. I guess he didn't get the chance to say, you should have gone for the head. I'm not sorry. The owner called the cops and they checked the crime scene out and because the bear traps were inside his cabin, he didn't even get a warning. If they would have been on the yard, it would have been a different story. So, I mean, first of all, this form of revenge was already nuclear. Deciding and settling on a bear trap to be the ultimate solution to stopping somebody from ever returning after they break in and assumedly step into this, maybe just about lose an ankle. But honestly, I can't imagine the horrendous feeling of getting back to your cabin, noticing the window is broken, opening that door and seeing what that guy saw there. There's definitely some things you wouldn't be able to unsee in life, and frankly stumbling across that opening your door to that scene, probably to be honest that smell too, would be a pretty unforgettable thing I would imagine. Do you guys think that considering OP intentionally put this bear trap in their house, that they should be liable for some kind of crime? Or do you think considering it was in their cabin, and the guy just dove in head first and tragically landed directly upon it, that OP should be pretty much scot-free and have no crime against them at all? I'd like to know your guys' thoughts on this in the comments down below. Is my cheating boss got a taste of his own medicine? Being a young, ambitious woman in the 70s was never going to be easy, especially in the north of England. But I never expected that my first job would turn into such a palaver. Still, I've never been a shrinking violet. I'd grown up in a working class part of Newcastle during the 50s and 60s. Tough families living on a threepence, hanging their hand-washed laundry in the streets where the kids played unsupervised. All the mams had names like Agnes, Vera, and Maureen, walked around with a cigarette in their mouths and chatted with their neighbors about what the young lass at number 28 had been doing with the lad across the street. It was that sort of life. I suppose you had to do something for entertainment when you couldn't afford a TV. They were good people helping each other out where they could, despite having little themselves. However, I didn't want my life to be like that. I didn't want to marry a dock worker or a milkman, get married, get pregnant, and spend my life washing dirty undies in a tin bath. No, I wanted my own career, and to have all the nice things that the posh people had. So when I left school, I grabbed the paper and started scouring the job ads. Having aspirations, I decided that I didn't want to do factory or cleaning work. So I looked at one of the few other options available for a young woman starting out, secretary work. I responded to a few ads before I finally got taken on by a firm not more than 15 minutes walk away from home. When they ring back to tell me that I'd got the job, I was chuffed. I felt like a proper grown up. I remember how nervous I was in my first day. By now it was the 70s so I could slip into a pair of high heels and a miniskirt without half the disapproval I would have gotten had I been a young woman 20 years prior. In my mind, I expected I'd be walking into one of the newish, tall, concrete monoliths that were in the area. A big, booming business, I thought. As I walked down the road though, address in hand, I got to the end and couldn't find Wilson Bros Merchants. I nosied past the bit of old fence beside me and peered into grubby tract of land inside. 
piles of rusting metal, and then in the middle, a gray porta cabin. My heart sank. There, plastered onto its front, Wilson Bros. Scrap Merchants. My dreams of a posh office had just climbed out of the window and bolted for Brazil. I, I'd been wet behind the ears to think I'd been jumping into a cushy job straight out of school. Ma'am always said I had an active imagination. I know I couldn't go back though. So, I slowly made my way into no man's land, traversing the uneven ground with a lot of trepidation. I definitely misjudged my choice of footwear that day, and not just because I ran the risk of breaking an ankle. When I got inside, there was a desk with a typewriter and phone, and behind that, the door to what I presumed was the boss's office. I knocked, got called in by a booming voice, and met the man in question. I've gotta tell ya, I was taken by him almost straight away. He was a good-looking man, middle-aged and dressed to the nines. He reminded me a bit of Sean Connery. My face must have been a picture. For a minute, I couldn't take my eyes off him. When he invited me to sit, I couldn't find my words. Even then, as young as I was, I knew that he must have picked up on it because he had a bit of a sly grin on his face. I was mortified. He introduced himself to me as Mike, ran me through my jobs, and then got me set up at my desk. Over the following days, I quickly realized that this wasn't exactly a booming business. The odd few customers and clients each day, a couple of lads working the scrap, and that was it. Just enough work to keep us all ticking over. After a couple of weeks into the job, I begin to notice that Mike hangs around the reception more and more, chatting and joking with me. I found myself more and more taken with him, and my heart fluttered every time he smiled at me. He had this cheeky twinkle in his eye. One day, he came in and sat on the edge of the desk. He smelt of Old Spice, which, to a young lass in the 70s, made him as sophisticated as they came. He asked me if I'd like to go see The Great Gatsby with him at the ABC. A romantic film starring Robert Redford? You bet I said yes. That evening, I went home and got doled up, making an extra special effort for Mike. I was already smitten. I wasn't going to tell Mam about it either. No, I was just going out with a friend, I said. Jackie, that girl I went to school with. I was going to have my secret romance and to heck with what anyone else might have thought. I'd just finished reading The Female Eunuch and had begun fancying myself as a shining example of a modern woman breaking out of the domestic chains. So off I went in my new orange dress and kitten heels, catching a bus into town. When I got to the cinema, I found him waiting outside, looking debonair in his wool overcoat. When he saw me, he turned and smiled, rubbing his hands together to shake off the cold. When we got our tickets and went in, would you believe it, he led me to the back row. As it happened, the first part of the film was a relaxed and uneventful affair from an us point of view. Well, apart from dropping a piece of popcorn down my dress. When the first interval came, we both got an ice cream from the usher and settled back down. Gently, he notched up the dial by whispering a few naughty jokes here and there. At one point, an old woman in the front turned and hushed me because I couldn't hold back the giggles. After the film was over, we walked out and stood looking at one another for a moment. Then he took my hand and kissed it, telling me that he'd hoped I'd enjoyed the evening as much as him. I attempted to keep it together, but I fear I probably came away looking like a gibbering mess. I beat myself up for acting so girlishly on the bus ride home, thinking I'd made a fool of myself. I put on a brave face as I went into work the next morning, having no clue as to what to expect. As it happened, Mike came into the reception shortly after I'd settled down and sat on the chair opposite, leaning onto the desk. 
Smiling, he asked how I was. Well, my bottle went, didn't it? I was back to the awkward stuttering and blank mind. He outstretched his large hands and placed them over mine. I thought my heart might go bang and said gently, how way last, there's no need to be shy. Take a breath and start again. Well, I did and somehow I found myself again. I apologized for how I'd been, but he quickly assured me that I'd done nothing wrong. In fact, he told me that he'd been delighted by how mature I was for my age. A fine young lass, he called me. It was around a week or so after our first date that he invited me to dinner at a new Italian restaurant in the city center. Did I say yes? You bet. I was a 70s working class girl who just lived through the three-day week. I wasn't about to say no to a bit of luxury. I asked him to pick me up a few streets away from my house to avoid my ma'am seeing. After we parked up, we got out and started walking down towards the restaurant when a mustachioed fella and a Mac called out to Mike. The man's name was Jeff and he was a turf accountant, as well as a friend of Mike's. I was introduced as his secretary and when he learned that we were having dinner together, Jeff looked between us with a slightly wary gaze. At the time, I wrote it off as misgivings about the age gap. Perhaps I should have known better. The meal itself was wonderful. Lots of laughs, subtle flirtation, and the food? A million times better than beans on toast. I got to learn more about him too. Like half of the male population at the time, he liked football, beer, and skimpy negligees. On women, that is. He was originally from South Shields, had a sister who scandalized the family by having a baby at 15, and visited his father's grave every other Sunday. I asked him why he wasn't married. He coolly answered that he'd not been in luck in love. There'd been potential candidates, but they ultimately let him down in the end. Still, he said, he remained optimistic that he'd find the one. Before winking at me, a little smile crept onto my face, regardless of whether I wanted to do it. When we'd finished, he dropped me where I started, but not before we shared our first kiss. It was my first kiss. Being the sophisticated young lass I was though, I kept a stiff upper lip and got out of the car, sending him off into the night with no more than a simple goodbye. And so began our romantic liaison. I hooked up with him for my first time in a rundown bed and bath by the sea. Mike took the concept of a dirty weekend altogether too literal by picking that grubby hovel as our base. It came suitably paired with a mad old woman who spat when she spoke and talked to herself when doing her rounds. Mike assured me that it would be a great little place, that it must have changed her hands and that he was sorry for this. I tried very, very hard to make it seem like I was okay with the setup. I think he persuaded himself that I was. Heck, I think I convinced myself that I was okay with it. I consoled myself with the fact that our room had a nice view of the sea. Not that we saw much of it, or any of the little town. It got to a point where I was lost in the moment, in conniptions, and then, then scratching noises on the door. I jumped out of my skin until I heard meowing, and then I knew it was the mad old woman's cat. My mood for the moment was starting to wane. Then I heard footsteps and mumbling, louder and louder until it was right outside the door. Oh, you've had a tinkle on the carpet, tut tut. The cat's owner continued talking to herself outside the door. Then she went off and came back up a few minutes later, rattling as she came. Then we heard her scrubbing the carpet, loudly, right outside. Cat pee really kills the mood. After our interesting experience there, the romantic arena was largely centered back in Newcastle. In fact, I could pin most of it down to that little porta cabin. There were two things that did yet immediately occur to me at the time. 
A. That our relationship's romance has quickly but subtly disappeared. And B. We seem to be going nowhere. It was just hooking up. It was great, I'll grant you, but I started longing for something a bit more substantial. I always try to pick the right time to bring it up, usually after a dangerous but exciting round of you-know-what, we nearly got caught by one of his workers once. Somehow we'd managed to keep it discreet. I even had managed to keep my parents out of the loop. Thank God, too, my mother would have gone into conniptions if she had any clue. My father, maybe not so much. He was more interested in his pigeons, the horses, and brown ale. It's fair to say he wasn't a very hands-on father. Every time I'd confronted Mike, he palmed me off with platitudes. I got a bit fed up in the end and told him straight, I want more romance from you. He promised me a proper holiday. No half measures this time, he said. We would fly to Spain. A foreign holiday on a plane? This was a dream for me. I squealed slightly and threw my arms around him lost to the excitement. He laughed, telling me he had to go but that he'd be back soon. As it happened, he never did come back that day. By early evening, I began to worry. One of his workers, Terry, a sweet and chubby lad, told me not to worry and to get off. He said that this wasn't the first time he'd done it and that he always turned up the next day. He promised that he'd just lock up and offered me a lift home. I gracefully accepted, feeling somewhat placated but still just a touch anxious. True to his word though, Mike turned up the following morning. I asked him where he'd got to and he apologized, said a friend had called him over. The friend was going through a bad divorce, was depressed, couldn't leave him. Like a little fool, I swallowed it hook, line, and sinker. It wasn't until I went to a record shop to buy the latest David Essex record that I got smacked by the truth. Whilst I was there, I ran into Jeff. He asked how I was, and I told him on top of the world. He says, and Mike? I say, oh, he's fine too. We're both fine. I smiled, feeling giddy that I could refer to us as a couple, even if it was only to his friend. He gave me a knowing look. He says, ah, so you two really are? I looked at him slightly perplexed. Mike hasn't told you? Surely, I mean, you're his mate, right? Looking back, I cringe at that moment. How could I have been so eminently naive? Jeff's demeanor changed, becoming a bit flustered. Thelma's a good lass, he whispered. She doesn't deserve this. Did you know they're getting married? That she wants a bairn with him? Understandably, I was stumped. Thelma, you're not telling me that Mike is with someone else? He says, don't soft soap me, lass. I weren't born yesterday. And to make it clear, you're the someone else. With that, he stormed off. I just stood there not knowing what to think or feel. I put down the record in my hand and walked out. There was a little green space nearby with a bench, so I ambled over to it and took a seat. I'm the someone else? No, that can't be right. Me and Mike are a couple. We've been away together, had dinner together, spent time with each other. We're going on a big holiday. He's told me that he... No, that's it. He's not once said he loves me. We've never talked about the future. That's when it hit home. I was just his bit of skirt. God, I felt so sick. He'd been stringing me along, using me for his own pleasure. The deceit and disrespect wound me up to no end. I wanted to wear his balls as earrings. My first instinct was to barge into his office, first thing tomorrow, and give him a piece of my mind. By the time I got home though, the initial fury was coming down to a simmer. I decided that was too simple, so I thought about more creative ways to get back at him. Trash his office? Set fire to it? Put an ad in the Lonely Hearts? One cheating rat looking for quickies on an office desk must bring extra small protection. Mike Wilson of Wilson Bros. 
It was tempting, but I wondered if it would even get published. Probably not. My choice of plan took a few days to hit. I was chatting with ma'am about films when she brought up Love Story. That poor lass, she said. And the lad, too. They'd only been married five minutes. Had me in tears by the end. Dear, oh dear. My mind snapped back to the moment in the record shop. He was getting married, Jeff said. Over my dead body, I thought. My first problem was knowing when and where. It was bad enough that I had no time frame, but there were dozens of churches in Newcastle. How was I supposed to pick out the right one? I'd have to poke around. My first port of call was the ever-reliable Terry. I caught him on lunch break, trying hard to make it seem like a chance encounter, and tiptoed around the subject. Yes, he was aware that Thelma and Mike were getting married. No, he didn't know when, he just knew it was soon, within the next few weeks. It wasn't much, but it was a start. What next? It's not like I could follow him. When I got back inside the porta cabin, I glanced at the door to his office, and then almost straight away, I had an idea. I sat down at my desk and waited, pretending to work, until he passed me and went out for a loo break. I dashed into his office and over to his desk, looking for anything that could tell me what I needed to know. Lots of papers scattered across his desk, all work-related. I shuffled through the drawers, finding a bunch of keys, mints, a bottle of whiskey, and then, at last, something that might help me. His year planner. I flicked through the pages almost quicker than I could skim them, but it didn't take long before I found a telling page, June 29th, a date I'll never forget. Scrawled into the box was, day off, with a drawing of two rings underneath. Just over a month away, I started wondering how long they'd been together. Surely longer than we'd been, if you even call what we had together. As my mind started wandering though, I heard footsteps outside. I quickly closed the planner and shoved it back in its drawer, shutting it and taking a seat on the edge of his desk. Letting my skirt ride up just a touch, when he came in and saw me, he initially looked surprised, but quickly his face morphed into one of lasciviousness. Rat. He tried to initiate things, so I pretended to play coy by putting my finger over his mouth and telling him he'd have to wait. He grinned. In that moment, I realized that I had my work cut out for me, because I'd have to keep him at arm's length for five weeks. I managed it painfully with moderate success. I had to appease him a little once in a while every so often just to keep him from suspecting anything, but I avoided anything too far. In the meantime, I gave his office one more search. I eventually ended up going back to the planner, where, at the back, I found a section for phone numbers. There was no church name listed, but I did find the number for another Wilson, an Edith Wilson. When I got a quiet moment, I gave the number a ring. An old-sounding woman answered. I introduced myself as a secretary, and she eagerly cut in, exclaiming that she was Mike's mother. She was evidently proud of him. He'd done so well, you know, built himself up from nothing. I felt sick again. I bared it, though, tactfully broaching the subject of his little boy's wedding. Thelma was a fine young woman, a classy lady. Her father was a well-regarded local artist, apparently. I said I was ringing because I wanted to check the wedding venue. I'd been put in charge of making sure the business kept ticking over in his absence. I didn't want to bother a busy man like Mr. Wilson with trivialties. Mrs. Wilson was very understanding. Of course you don't want to bother him. Of course you'll need to know where he'll be. You'll want to ring him if anything urgent comes up. I thanked her aloud for helping me, and silently for putting the final nails in her son's coffin. 
The end of June 1974 was sweltering. You couldn't sit for a minute without sticking to your clothes. I was never one for the summer. Gray skies and rain for me. On the remorseful day, my first task was to decide how to present myself. Part of me wanted to rock up in full makeup, heels, and the naughtiest dress I could find, just to show him what he'd be missing. But then I changed my mind. This day was going to be bad enough for Thelma without me competing with her. Besides, the rat didn't deserve my best efforts. I decided to wear the formless gray dress that I wore when going to my nan's, the prudish Catholic one I mentioned, with a pair of flats and no makeup. I grabbed my black clutch bag and off I went. Whilst I was on the bus, I wondered if maybe I was in the wrong. Maybe he'd be faithful once they were married. Maybe they'd have kids and a Ford Cortina and live happily ever after. Was I taking it all away? But then I thought of Margaret and Barry two doors down. She cheated on him, and then again, and again. No, why should he be any different? That poor lass is planning a life with him, seeing far into the future, whilst he can't see any further than his trousers. She deserves better, and so do I. When I got close, I peered around the church's road and saw the final few guests entering the church. She would be here soon. I was beginning to feel anxious. About five minutes, a creamy white Rolls Royce cruised towards the church, complete with ribbons. She stepped out and my jaw dropped. She was beautiful, older than me, late 20s or early 30s, and immaculate. I felt daft, forever thinking I could compete with her. When she went in and the doors had closed, I slinked up to them and listened. I knew that there was a moment when guests could raise objections. So I waited. Although it felt like forever, I heard the vicar say it. Speak now or forever hold your peace. I pushed the church door open without a second to spare through the entrance and into the church itself. Hundreds of eyes turned to face me, but I met only one pair and his quickly filled with dread at the sight of me. I said, I have an objection, vicar. The bride's groom's been having a relationship with me. The church was deathly silent. The vicar didn't know where to put his face. The guests were gobsmacked, and as for Thelma, all she could do was look between him and me. It's not true, he tried to communicate softly. The echo in the church wasn't about to let his lie creep away quite so easily, though. Not that it mattered. It was clear he was lying. I knew it. She knew it. We all knew it. He'd been caught with his pants down, so to speak, and there was no way out. I saw her face contort into anger and expected her to slap him, but she exceeded my expectations by lunging at him, thumping him on the chest. She really went for him. What happened after that, I don't know. I left them to it and never heard about either of them again. Truth be told, I found the whole thing a very sorry affair in the end. As soon as I could, I left Newcastle and never looked back. I found work in a new life in London and ended up training to be a teacher. I've had a few boyfriends since Mike, some good and a couple not, did a bit of traveling with a new pal I made, and made sure I never wasted another minute more than necessary. Contrary to my younger self's expectations, I never did quite rid myself of domestic chains. I married an accountant, someone has to, and had a daughter with him. When she was four, we settled into a lovely house in Richmond where we still live. Lots of happy memories have filled this home over the years. I wouldn't leave now if you paid me. She's now all grown up and engaged herself, giving me pause for thought. The cycle of life continues. New adult lives are getting off the ground. It's quite a humbling realization. 
Still, I have no intention of fading into the background. You can take the girl out of Newcastle and all that. I still sometimes wonder what happened to Mike. How many more women did he use before he got old and shriveled? Did he ever get old? Part of me wishes that I hadn't done what I did, even if only for Thelma. But then I remember that, in the end, she was probably better off for it. Then, the regret just vanishes. So considering OP went and waited for the very last possible second to drop this bombshell, literally standing at the altar, right when the words, speak now or forever hold your peace are uttered, OP bursts in there and drops the bomb. Was OP in the wrong for doing it the way they did? Should OP have just tried to reach out to Thelma as soon as possible and inform them? You know, blow this up before it ever got to this point? Or do you think OP waiting and creating this huge scene and just exploding everything right at the very apex of it? A totally justifiable thing in your eyes. Let me know what you guys think in the comments down below. Welcome friends to another r slash nuclear revenge video. Today we've got one of the craziest stories of revenge against a school bully. But first, make sure to hit those like and subscribe buttons down below so you never miss any of my daily videos. I brought the school bully to his knees. Every school has its bullies. We've all known one, right? I bet more than a few of us have had dealings with them too. Kids can be cruel little jerks at the best of times. Throw in some forbidden fruit though and they just spiral out of control. I grew up in a pretty bad part of Michigan, lots of crime, and nothing much else. I try to keep my head down and avoid all of that as much as possible, but it was hard not to be touched by it. I lost a friend to crack. He'd become hooked and played the street lottery until one day he bought a losing cut and ended up passing out next to someone's trash can. The trash man was the one who found him, reportedly lying against the can as if he was sleeping. He'd been dead for hours by then. He was 13. Not more than a year later, a female pal of mine went to prison because she'd been caught dealing. She told me that her boyfriend would get pretty handsy if she didn't do as he said. The jury didn't seem to believe her, but I did. She was my friend. I knew what a lot of people thought about people like us. No, that's not it. They didn't even think of us as people. Just vermin scuttering around in the gutter. There is just a little part of me, one that winces with guilt, for feeling like I understand where they're coming from, though. None of us were saints. A lot of us did things we shouldn't have, but I don't think we were bad people. I think we just got screwed over by life. Nonetheless, I'd be a liar if I said that I thought there were no bad eggs stinking us out. School's never easy, but a poorly funded school in a rough part of town can be chaos. I didn't really appreciate that at the time. It took a few years and some distance to really see how messed up it was. That said, I knew enough at the time to at least know it was bad. That's why even at school I tried to keep my head down. That carried over to my grades. I was wary of trying too hard because I knew that top grades equaled brutal bullying. Fists, not brains, ruled the schoolyard. So I made the word quiet my mantra, living my school days as someone most people didn't think about much. I had a close-knit little circle of friends, I didn't bother anyone much, and I didn't stick my neck out. I liked it like that. In the 10th grade, a new kid joined the school. His name was Blake and his family had just moved up from Alabama. He was a good looking kid but apart from that seemed pretty unassuming. I quickly learned though that he had a couple of unreal abilities. One, he had real charisma. Have you ever met someone that could make the air move? The kind of person who could make people feel special just by paying attention to them? He had it. The other thing was that he was trained in karate. 
I've never been really bullied before, or at least nothing beyond the occasional name calling in middle school, but in this guy, I found someone who really didn't like me. At first, he was just occasionally passive aggressive, but he ramped it up over time when he saw that, initially, I didn't offer much resistance. I thought that if I didn't react, that he'd eventually get bored and leave me alone. More fool me. In reality, it was just confirmed to him that I was an easy target, and so I became his new favorite prey. On a chilly fall afternoon, I was walking home from school when I sensed that I was being followed. By the time that I did though, I was between a rock and a hard place. I could either turn back and face my follower, or move through the alley ahead of me, the one I usually used as it was a shortcut home. I didn't have it in me to turn around, so I took a chance and carried on. I got about halfway before I heard running and felt the back of my jacket grabbed, before being shoved against the wall. There he was, Blake with his impenetrable dark brown eyes watching me. My nerves were on high alert as I tried to think of how I should handle this. Should I try and appease him, stand up to him? All I knew is that I didn't want to get hurt. I just wanted to roll on home, take off my bag and grab a soda from the fridge. The corner of his mouth curled into a menacing little smile. I've been seeing you looking at my girl. For reference, his girl was a mean girl type with a laugh like a strangled parrot. I say I haven't, I promise. His eyes lit up. I knew I'd fallen into his trap. You calling me a liar? I say no, I just... What, my girl not good enough for you? I say no, that's not it. Reckon you're something special, don't you? Pretty uppity, aren't ya, M-boy? As soon as he said that, I knew exactly what his problem was. Still, it didn't help me whatsoever in finding a solution. Not that I had any time to think of one. He cleared the distance between us and slapped me hard. I went into shock. I was no fighter, so this was the first time I'd ever been hit, and I had no idea how to respond. I looked up to him, and there was a terrifying look of satisfaction and glee on his face. I went to run, but he grabbed me and pushed me back against the wall before punching me in the gut. I was screwed. I was winded, paralyzed, and he used that. He threw more hits until my body was aching like crazy. When he'd had his fill, he grabbed my hair and pulled my head up, making me look directly at him. He was panting a bit, but he got his message across loud and clear. What's the matter? I thought your kind were supposed to be tough. At least the bruises won't show. After that, he gently slapped my cheek and walked off. I didn't know what to do with myself at first. But then the reality hit home and I just started crying. I felt stupid. Mom had always told me that men are supposed to be tough, that I needed to toughen up. That kept looping in my mind, making me feel like a failure. It was about half an hour before I pulled myself together and carried on home. When I got there, I didn't go to the kitchen. Instead, I went straight to the bathroom, firstly to swirl my face with fresh water. It's apparently supposed to do something for crying, but I never noticed the difference. And then I took off my jacket and shirt. Blake had been wrong. I could already see red patches on my skin. I had an idea that it would feel worse tomorrow, and I was right. Our home wasn't much, but Mom made the most of it. She kept the place spotless and made sure everything was always in its proper place. Fortunately for our finances, it was just the two of us. I never had any brothers or sisters, and Dad left when I was little. As I got older, I resented him for that, for leaving me and Mom to fend for ourselves. I wasn't very old when he left, but I was old enough to remember something of him. I remember that he had big feet and that he was a cheerful guy. He gave me attention, played cars with me, and sometimes tucked me into bed and read me stories. He couldn't always do it because he worked nights quite a lot, but I never for a moment imagined that he'd just walk away one day. 
I remember the day he left, mom had come to pick me up from elementary school and walked all the way home without saying a word about it. Throughout the evening, she still never said anything. It was only when a day had passed that she couldn't hide the truth from me any longer. I burst into tears and blamed her. I regret that. I know it was just me being a stupid little kid and I'm sure she knows it too, but I still feel a little bad about it. I used to take the edge off my frustration by joking that he'd probably just gone out for cigarettes and that he'd be back anytime soon. In all seriousness though, I did wonder what the heck happened to him. When he left, the only thing he took were his clothes. Everything else, his watch, DVD collection, signet ring and revolver, had remained here untouched. It was like he was some secret agent who'd been called away and could never return. I doubt that's the reason though, dad had two left feet. He tripped over my Lego once and pulled the sofa to the floor with him. Hardly George smiling. I didn't want to go to school the next day. I felt sick to my stomach at the mere thought of being around that thug. My nerves were close to shot. I thought about skipping for the one day but knew that the school would ring home, that mom would be here to answer it and that it would be alarming. I never missed a day of school, so she'd be bound to confront me about it and then I'd either have to lie or come clean about what really happened. God knows I wish I could. I wished that she would be understanding and supportive. My gut instinct told me that the opposite was more likely though, and I couldn't deal with that as well as Blake. So what was left? Keep quiet or tell a teacher? Couldn't tell one of them. I'd be sealing my own fate. Nobody likes a squealer, especially bullies. I came to the conclusion that I should keep quiet for now, see how things played out. A flash of blind optimism, stupid optimism, even led me to think that, hey, maybe he'd had his fill and he'd move on, leave me alone. Man, I was delirious. I dragged myself to school, really feeling the sting of yesterday's attack, and did my best to keep my distance from him. I found that I couldn't even bear to look at him. It felt like the longest day ever, but I managed it, and without encountering him once. As soon as school finished, I got out of there as fast as I could and ran home, despite the pain. Rinse and repeat over the next couple of weeks. I began to think there was something in my hope. Everything seemed to have cooled off. As a matter of fact though, it was just the eye of the storm. He got a bit braver and would start harassing me during the school day. He started spreading rumors that I was gay, that my mom was a junkie, and that my dad was in jail for messing around with kids. Basically anything a 2000s bullying teen could dish out to ruin my credibility. When he made a pariah of me, he upped the ante by shoving me anytime he passed me in school. Then it just got worse and worse. When he caught me in the bathroom once, he gave me a swirly. He printed off a picture of a black man hanging from a tree and stuck it to my locker. He shoved me more and more. He stuck a picture of the triple K to my locker. I ripped that one off. He came up behind me and dug his hands into my ribs hard and then laughed when I jumped out of my skin. He wasn't the only one either. I could hear other kids around me laughing. The thing is, it was when he did nothing that unnerved me the most. So when he started following me home again, repeatedly, without doing anything, I found it scariest of all. Sometimes he'd hang out around outside my place for a while. The first time he did that, I didn't know and went mindlessly looking out of the living room window. My heart skipped a beat and his eyes calibrated onto me. He smiled and made a threatening gesture. By this point, I felt like I was coming apart. He just kept pushing and pushing. I was anxious, scared, and frustrated. I just wanted him to leave me alone. It didn't make any sense. How could he hate me so much? I had never done anything to him. Not even so much as given him a dirty look. 
It was harsh, but if I can take anything from it, it's the first-hand experience of being on the receiving end of disgusting, blind hatred. Still, I find it pretty unnerving to know that people can behave like that, that they can revile something to the depths of their heart without any good reason. I carry that thought around with me. The only upshot was that becoming a pariah showed me who my true friends were. Out of the few that I had, I was left with about two who stuck by me. A couple just kept distance from me, ghosted me, but one went as far as to kowtow to Blake, becoming his lackey. In this corner of the world though, loyalty is paramount, so I don't know whether his move was brave or stupid. What I do know is that despite initially seeming like Blake had accepted him into his little clique, he was eventually tied to a post and stripped down to his underwear, left and found in the morning by a helpful passerby. After that, he was on his lonesome. Blake didn't want anything to do with him. I certainly didn't, and let's face it, who else is going to want to be friends with a backstabber? During recess once, one of the two who stuck by me, Kyle, was chatting to me about him. He brought up how his home life had been pretty rough, mentioning how unstable it was and wondering if we could give him another chance. My teenage self was adamant that he didn't deserve a second chance, that he deserved to be alone after backstabbing us. Looking back, sometimes I wonder whether that was right. Anyway, about a couple of weeks after this started, my mom told me one evening that Gran had fallen ill and would need help. Her and her sisters were going to take turns, and being the oldest, she was first up. It would only be a couple of days, she told me. In reality, she ended up being there nearer a week. In the meantime, I think that Blake must have cottoned on that I was home alone, and one evening brought along a couple of friends. Through the slits in the blinds, I recognized them from school too. I'll admit it, I was terrified. My first thought went to wondering what I could use to protect myself. I looked around, thought about the knives in the kitchen, and then decided they'd be too risky to use in defense. Then, my mind traveled upstairs to the top of the wardrobe in my mom's room, where a little wooden box sat. I raced up there and grabbed it. Opening it and sitting inside was dad's gun. I vividly remember the feeling of picking it up. It had a nice weight to it. It was reassuring. I checked the barrel and found there were a couple bullets inside. For a moment, I just stood under the light and pretended Blake was standing in front of me, then held the gun and took aim. A surge of excitement washed over me. I felt powerful. After the beating, humiliation, and torment, I felt this piece of metal was leveling things, giving me back control. I wanted to make Blake pay. I wanted to see his friends run scared. I headed down the stairs and walked up to the front door. I was going to make sure Blake never hurt me again. I quickly thrust the handle down and opened the door, stepping out and prepared to face them. When I got there though, they'd already gone. The next day, I got dressed, grabbed my bag and slipped the gun into it before heading off to school. Same old, same old, harassed during school and then followed home, continuing on most days. I kept the piece with me, and on the days when they did follow me, I was always tempted to pull it out and point it at them. I persevered though, only by the grace of God, for a while longer. By this point, I didn't go anywhere without my bag. So on one Saturday evening when I'd agreed to meet up with a few friends at a local basketball court to shoot a few hoops, the bag came with me. Going there, I didn't feel too bad. I had no reason to think that Blake would be spending his weekend spying on me, and no reason to think he'd know where I was going. When I got to the court, I felt reassured to see my mates there. We had a laugh, got some fresh air, and caught up with one another. I told them about Blake. One of them said I should call the cops on him. 
The other one chimed in and said I could be playing with fire if I did that. They were like the little angel and devil on my shoulders, arguing about what I should do. In this case, I agreed with the devil and his fire. It was a catch-22 situation. After we'd finished, we said our goodbyes and headed off home. I was happy for having had some fun, for being with friends, and it made me careless. It took me way too long to notice the footsteps behind me. I stopped and turned, emboldened by the gun, and saw Blake standing there alone. Cocky smile on his face and his hands resting in his hoodie's pockets. Saw you at the court with your little boyfriends. Looks like you won't be getting any tonight. I say shut up. I had to take stock. The words just fell out of my mouth, so casually and calmly. He said, would you look at that? Black boy's got some balls after all. He started towards me and, to be honest, even now, I don't know if it was fear or excitement that led to me instinctively, quickly pulling out the gun. He stopped dead in his tracks as I pointed it at him, and I felt huge satisfaction from seeing the smile wiped from his face. It had come to pass. I was in control, and he was the prey. I understood that intoxicating feel of power that he'd felt all this time. He said that I should reconsider things, that I'd got it all wrong. There was no bad blood between us. We were just messing around. My blood pressure must have skyrocketed. What kind of fool did he take me for? I asked him. He said that he didn't. I told him that he did, that he'd never try and make me believe beating me up, harassing me, and taunting me was anything but bad blood. My mounting anger must have been clear to him because he got backtracked, gave me some weak apology that I didn't believe for a second. I got closer and told him as much. He told me that he'd beg and he did. He got down on his knees and started pleading with me. My position became weirder. I simultaneously felt angry, powerful, and sadistic glee. I was becoming lost to my emotions, but then I remembered the look in his eyes when he first slapped me. It occurred to me that I'd sunk to his level, and quickly, it stopped feeling so satisfying. I lowered the gun and turned away, telling him to just leave me alone. I went to slip the gun into my bag when I heard him come running towards me, grabbing my gun hand. We struggled up and down, pushing and pulling. I told him to let go. Over and over like a dog with a bone, though, he refused to. He shoved me, then I shoved him back, and then, amidst the struggle... I felt his finger compress mine against the trigger. It went off with a bang that froze me to the spot. It was as if time itself had paused in that split second. The first thing I did when I got myself together was to look down. There was a hole in his jeans, one that was bleeding. His grip relinquished as he saw it too and I stumbled back. His face contorted in pain and he spluttered a swear word. Confused to be in this surreal situation, I didn't know what to say, so I just said that I was sorry and pulled out my mobile. I flipped it open and called 911, telling them only that I needed an ambulance because someone had been shot. I gave them my location and then hung up, with a mind to just walk away. As I began to though, Blake's strained voice stopped me in my tracks. There was a hint of triumph in his voice as he said that he was going to tell the police exactly what I'd done. I said he had no proof. He affirmed that, saying that it was his word versus mine, that they weren't going to believe me over him. It struck me in that instant that he was right, that my future was set by that one brief moment. I felt strangely numb. I just wanted to be at home, I thought, so I intended to leave him to it. It wasn't going to matter either way anyway. Blake said, whilst you're locked up, me and the guys will see to your mom. What I felt when he said that 
was a kind of cold, still anger. I didn't care anymore. I used that second bullet. I tossed the gun aside and walked home like nothing had happened. I sat on the sofa and turned on the TV, watched the news, and soon heard the toilet flush. A minute or so later, mom appeared in the living room and looked at me awry. She asked me if everything was okay and I laughed. It felt like the craziest thing someone could ask me after everything that had happened. She probed, but I couldn't bring myself to tell her about any of it. She soon got her answers though when the police turned up a couple of hours later, arresting her son for murder. There was no trial. I pled guilty. I was screwed either way after all. It was a built-up area, so someone was bound to have seen something. My prints were on the gun, and I knew it would rest on our statements. I knew how that sort of thing went down, and I knew that they'd take his side over mine. It was a done deal. I got sentenced to 16 years in prison without parole and haven't been out long. I had a lot of time to think and reflect whilst I was on the inside. Did I do the right thing? Stopping him from getting to my mom, I mean. I realized that this whole sorry mess was a heck of a lot more complicated than that. I knew that as much as Blake was a violent, racist thug, he'd probably been molded like that by his horrible parents. I knew that I should have never have taken out that gun in the first place, but also that I felt very seriously scared for my safety. That no matter who I might have told, I'd likely lose regardless. Life on the outside hasn't been easy as a convict, especially one of my caliber, but I'm really trying to make something of my life again. I've been trying to set up a little eBay business, but I found out it's not nearly as easy to get selling as it seems. I've been joking about the possibility of trying to get my own reality TV show. Everyone seems to have one these days. That's one of the things I noticed when I first got out of prison. Sure, there'd been reality shows before I went inside, but now it's as if they've taken over. People get to be celebrities from it. The world's really changed a lot, even though it's not been all that long in the grand scheme of things. My family disowned me, mom included. I tried visiting her after I got out, but she slammed the door in my face. I did it for you, ma. You want to know the final irony? I dealt with Blake to stop the harassment and violence. Then, a few months after being released, just when I thought I might settle down to a new life, a neighbor found out about my conviction and started harassing me. He smashed one of my windows and vandalized my home. I was older and wiser though, so I didn't turn to violence. At first, I tried to reason with him, but he wouldn't listen. He said that I'd killed Blake because he was white, and that I was probably part of the Nation of Islam, a crazy thing that couldn't have been further from the truth. When it became clear that I couldn't find a common ground with him, and when the cops repeatedly refused to do anything useful to stop him, I packed my things and moved. I survived all those years in prison, so I know that I can be as patient as I need as I keep on searching for that better life. I'll find it someday. Honestly, this is an incredibly rough story to hear about. Although there was revenge in the story, from start to finish, there's no satisfaction really to be had. Do you think in the heat of the moment that OP ultimately made the right decision that no matter what they did, they were going to be doomed? Let me know what you guys think in the comments down below to bury the hatch. When mother-in-law was young and growing up on a plantain farm, she had an uncle who was smitten for a neighbor girl. The uncle and girl had grown up together, had been the best of friends, and he wanted her like no other. She said all he had to do was ask, but the poor guy was so nervous. One day, they both stroll into town together, and the town bully sees her at the market. He compliments her unfavorably and demands he take her out, because the town knows he always gets his way. 
the uncle objects, to which the bully says he'll follow them home and harass her until she agrees, and spread lies about uncle. She tells the uncle some days later that she'll go with the bully to stop the harassment. He tells her his dreams and says his peace to her, and she agrees that they'll be together forever after this night. She goes that night and is never seen alive again. A week later, news comes out that parts of the missing girl are found in a local pig pen about the same time rumors of the bully being involved are circulating. Bully neither denies nor admits doing it. An investigation is opened, the bully seems to have numerous airtight alibis, is let go but closely watched. Uncle confronts the town bully about where she might be. Bully said he didn't know, but invites Uncle to a card game that coming weekend to bury the hatchet about all this, and Uncle agrees. The rest of the week, he hears rumors of the bully bragging that he was involved. He tells his family the news, and they were very saddened. His mother advises him against any revenge, but says that she would stand by any decision. He drives to the card game, wins a decent amount, and offers to take the bully out on the town since Uncle had the money now. Bully gets wasted, starts passing out in Uncle's car, and proceeds to talk incoherently about the girl's disappearance. He goes on about how she wanted to pet the pigs, but he said only if she kisses him, and she says when they get there. They get to the pig farm, she refuses and says she wants to go home, but he had other plans. He knocks her out, has his way with her, and feeds her to the pigs. Uncle is furious drives Bully to the closest pig farm, and proceeds to use the hatchet that he always kept in his trunk to bludgeon and dismember said Bully and fed him to several hungry pens. Uncle drives as fast as he can to the family farm, where he tells his mother. She tells him to put his clothes in the burn barrel, and she would meet him at the river right after she took the hatchet and buried it deep into a random plantain trunk. Then he got into bed with all the kids and pretended to sleep. That night, the police came knocking and asked to speak with Uncle, as he was last seen with the bully. They said the bully was found the same way the girl had been, knew of Uncle's affection, and wanted to know if he had been involved. His mother tells him that he came straight home right after the card game and said the community could vouch for him because he was part of the paranda. They left empty-handed but opened an investigation the following week. Uncle was questioned, the local community was questioned, but Uncle had numerous airtight alibis. So it turns out, even some guy in Larry's that Uncle never met. Considering people who have never even met Uncle were willing to vouch for them and try to give them an alibi, do you think that this bully deserved what happened to them? Especially with what the bully did to the neighbor girl? Let me know what you guys think in the comments down below. Our next story is from AccurateChain8581. I built a 15-foot wall to tell my neighbor that I was upset. This is not my story but my dad's, and he tends to get funny acts of revenge, so I'll be posting a lot from now on. A little about him, whenever someone upsets him, he never shouts and never gets angry, but gets crazy revenge. So on with the story. About 12 years ago, he bought a piece of land on the outskirts of a major city, and well he had plans, but at that time, not the funds. So it was just a piece of land. And 6 years after buying the land, some people bought the land next to it and built a house there. And where I live, it's currently not possible to get a water pipe directly to your house. So every evening a tractor came, hooked with a tank to give you water to bathe and other stuff. So after the construction was done, a family moved in and started getting water from the tanker, and around that same time, 
My father planted two mango trees on our property. That evening when my father came to water the plants a bit, he noticed they were destroyed. So the next day he confronted the tractor driver to look out for the plants. But the driver only laughed a bit and mumbled something. A few days later, he got more trees and same as before, they were destroyed. And he again confronted the driver. Same thing happened and he again got the plants and the next day they were again destroyed. So after a fourth time of this, he was pissed. The next day, what he did was call a trench digger and made a four foot deep trench around his property. And when the driver came with his tractor, he was baffled and was like, what do I do now? In the end, he had to go around the whole lane of the house, about one kilometer, as the behind area of the properties was currently where he came from to give them water. So after digging the trench, my dad started building the wall. First, the wall was a mere two feet, and the neighbors thought it would stop there, but no. The wall then grew to three feet, then five feet, then eight feet. They thought it would stop there, but nope. It went up to 11 feet, completely blocking their sunlight and wind. Then my father bought three dogs, two bullies and a Tibetan Mastiff, though he later bought two huskies who howl every single night, and then he planted some trees, which were a bit short but growing. So in the end, my neighbors do not have access to sunlight, fresh air, or a good night's sleep just because they messed with my dad. I mean, I feel this is completely fair game. So to clarify, the neighbors were going to the tanker every single day and trampling over OP's father's plants. First of all, they were trespassing to get to the tanker, and not only were they trespassing, they were damaging property. So I think it's more than fair game for OP's father to build up their defenses to prevent being terrorized by their own neighbors. Also, I hope that the mango trees were able to grow after that point because mangoes are delicious, and I hope they were able to enjoy some. By the way, if you're enjoying these stories, make sure to hit those like and subscribe buttons down below so you never miss any of my daily videos. Every single video has awesome stories, like our next story from Hannibal von Manstein, High School Athletics versus Broken Blood Vessels. Here, dear readers, another Conte of my school years. I'm in the end of grade 10, and the wrestling season is drawing to a close. We set the scene at the city championships where the bronze medal qualifier is about to take place. Hannibal, myself, and entitled wrestler are fighting for the bronze medal of the 90 kilogram, 198 pounds weight class. Both are in grade 10. The winner will not only get the medal, but the chance to advance to the regional competition held in a few weeks. Being very evenly pitched as the same height, weight, and age, etc., I very slowly gained points on entitled wrestler. Then, within 30 seconds to spare, Entitled Wrestler pulls a reversal on the ground. To spare the details, the score at the end was 7 for Hannibal and 4 for Entitled Wrestler. However, the incompetent referee was either a relative or an acquaintance. I never found out, but I suspect. Incompetent referee says I'm pinned after the bell is rung, giving Entitled Wrestler the win even though I was ahead on points, wasn't pinned, and the timer had clearly ran out. I am infuriated to the point of saying a profane word that rhymes with hockey puck, to which the incompetent referee tells me, no swearing on the mats, young man, all the while enduring a self-righteous smile from both him and the entitled wrestler who stole my victory. Nearly all my self-control was needed not to punch incompetent referee full power in the throat, I am livid for days, as my wrestling season has just ended. 
I then take the anger and lift weights very seriously from the end of city championships, April, until just before grade 11 season, November. If you've never lifted weights in anger, I highly recommend it. There's nothing quite as soothing as the healing power of hatred. I pushed the extra reps out knowing next year I would embarrass him every time our schools would duel. But the gods were even more generous than that, and so our revenge begins. Grade 11 preseason tournament has now started, a pool tournament where each weight class is split into groups of 5 or 6, and everyone wrestles everyone else. Those who win all the matches get a small medal. It's seen as a warm-up tournament to get used to the ensuing months of high competition. Entitled wrestlers in my pool, after the national anthem and the head referee welcoming and wishing good luck to all the competitors over the PA system, entitled wrestler approaches. He then says to me with the most arrogant smile he could muster, Hey, you go to high school name, don't you? Yeah, I remember you. I beat you at cities last year. The hubris was over the top, as the same incompetent referee is running the mat we're on. With my loose-fitted shirt on, he can't tell I've been working out thinking about punishing him for the past seven months. I smile and say, yeah, close match, with the zen of knowing all that work will now pay off. Our names are called by the incompetent referee, I remove my shirt, and the difference is literally night and day. He looks exactly the same condition. He looks nervous. After the formality of shaking hands, the whistle blows. Due to the now excessive upper body strength difference, his defense crumbles and I've scored a one-point takedown. It was literally me grabbing both his shoulders and throwing him down. The move, although not an officially named move, was described by a close friend and teammate in the 68 kilogram class as, like a cop arresting a suspect, bro. This took all of 8 seconds. I'm on his back thinking of a good way to pin him and the cradle comes to mind. I execute the cradle and he's been pinned in under 12 seconds. Hannibal wins, the incompetent referee does not give me the pin. He slowly counts to 5, then gives me another point for holding. His plan was to have Entitled Wrestler break my grip from the cradle, making me arm-tired, thus allowing him to win via scoring back the two points he was now down. And aside to the cradle, it's a move where you grab around someone's knee and over their neck, holding the leg to the chest. This makes it near impossible to avoid being turned onto the back and exposes both shoulder blades for a pin. I have the cradle on Entitled Wrestler and he's fighting for all he can. The incompetent referee is not going to give me the win. My mind switches gears once I mentally figure out the following. I hate this person, he stole my victory last year and he's trying that even now. How much can I hurt him? I start squeezing harder and harder, like a boa or python. I squeeze harder when he breathes out so he can never refill his lungs to full capacity. The incompetent referee does nothing, waiting for me to exhaust myself. Entitled wrestler turns red, then blue. I'm suffocating him with all my might. My workouts had taken me to the low end of the strength spectrum for grown men, and he was still an average teenager. A fully legal move is still devastating to the body when done full power, with a massive strength difference for a long time. After a good 50 to 60 seconds of suffocating entitled wrestler into said pretzel formation, I look up at incompetent referee. I show no exertion as I smile at him. He sees that I'm enjoying hurting entitled wrestler as I squeeze even harder, jerking his head and neck visibly. 
He realizes his politics are no match for my conditioning and quickly ends the match with a pin victory for Hannibal. Aftermath, entitled wrestler has to be helped off the mats by a school's coach. I've squeezed him so hard and long that I've broken blood vessels in his eyes. He has to sit out the season for the medical. The head referee reprimands incompetent referee and kicks him out of the tournament. He later loses his license to referee matches as he's allowed a kid under his watch to be so badly hurt due to gross incompetence. I continue with the tournament, ending with a 4-1 record, losing only to the kid who was about 6'5". With his reach advantage, he was able to keep me from grabbing around his waist. Yeah, I've gotta say, this incompetent referee clearly had a game plan, and honestly it works out well if you're refereeing a match that's actually fairly ranked, but in this free-for-all format where somebody like OP who can be like hulked out goes up against Entitled Wrestler who is not quite nearly as hulked out, you can't really count on Entitled Wrestler being able to hold their own long enough to like create a scenario where they could win. If you're outmatched the way you are like OP was against Entitled Wrestler here in the second match, you're probably going to end up pinned in submission. And our final story of the day is by Mitchell Lady, a man murdered my step aunt. His body was never found. To start, this story is going to be a short story. This isn't my story, but my stepdad's. He didn't go into much detail, so I can't. He's gone nearly 20 years now, so I can't ask for any. This story occurs in the 1950s when he was a teenager in a small town in Michigan, USA. My stepdad had a younger sister, and one night, she went on her very first date ever with this guy she really liked from school. Dad said she was so excited and spent hours getting ready. She never came home. That night, she was assaulted and murdered. The date denied any wrongdoing, and the police didn't charge him, but he was the last person she was with, so everyone assumed they knew what happened. Some of my dad's friends decided to take matters into their own hands. He said he wasn't happy with them, and I believe him, but he knew the lake they dumped his body in. He told us that when he left to go to Nam in 59, there'd been a few attempts to drain the lake, but none has succeeded. Dad was a Native American and said that he thought the spirits didn't want the man's body to be found. This is definitely one of those situations that you come to really appreciate the modern forensics. Nowadays, just being able to get DNA samples and testing, if you have a suspect in hand like that, you're going to be able to find some kind of evidence and you'll be able to directly test it against that suspect. In the 1950s, they just didn't have that kind of technology. And especially nowadays, there's cameras just about everywhere. I mean, a lot of crimes nowadays still go completely unsolved, but compared to like the 1950s, it's not even close. Checkmate in double time. Once upon a time, when I was in 8th grade, I had two bullies, a kid, and a teacher. The plot happened like this. In my schools in Puerto Rico, I had a bully that unfortunately was always put into my homeroom of 30 students approximately over and over. And in 8th grade, I had an English teacher that had a lot of errors in grammar or speech. People say I have the patience of God all the time, so it was easy to target me. Do you remember how a rubber band works? That was me. The teacher was yelling at me because I wasn't at the same level as the class and had a different pronunciation as my teacher. Until one day, I waited until after the class and told her that she had did something wrong in class. So she destroyed my scholarship because she wouldn't give me anything other than a C after the event. So no music, no money to study, no peace at my house. 
My parents were abusive in the worst ways, so they stepped it up a notch. My friends started to make my bully go against the English teacher as I started to do pranks and mess around with all her stuff, like unfolding the chairs she would use, hide her keys, put menacing notes in her desk or purse, and accredited the glory to my bully until she became paranoid in the classroom. But nobody suspected the nice teacher's pet that apologized to the English teacher. One day I decided to do the coup de gras and aggravated him until he was yelling at the English teacher and the English teacher was trying to scold and drag him to the principal of the school. Then my bully got out of her grasp and started fighting her. So I had a thought. While the commotion was going on, I broke the windows and mirrors in her car with an extra shirt from his gym bag, then used the shards to scratch all her paint off and left the shirt in the crime scene. My bully got suspended and banned from most schools in the area, and my English teacher had a mental breakdown and was forced to retire while I told her about the whole plan as she deteriorated. She was admitted to a psychiatric institution. Do you think the teacher in this situation deserved what they got? Basically bullying their own students and then purposely failing them? Does that make it fair game for that jerk of a teacher to get their car totally trashed and ultimately put into a psychiatric institution? I'd like to know what you guys think in the comments down below. By the way, if you're enjoying these stories, make sure to hit those like and subscribe buttons down below so you never miss any of my daily videos. Our next story is from an anonymous poster. You broke my heart? Time for you to taste your own medicine, quite literally. So to the story, this happened about six years ago when I was halfway through my medicine degree. In my country, it's not as difficult to enter med school like it is in the USA. So I was very young, barely 20 years old at the time. Also, I just recently came out of the closet. Yes, this is a gay story. This is very important because I came out after my first ever male love interest, we'll call him Andrew, rejected me and basically outed me to the entire faculty in the process. But that's another story. So I was in the middle of a very hard TUSA, meaning heartbreak, when here I met the third protagonist of this tale, my rebound, who I'll call Philip. Well, I'd met him before, around the time I was trying to woo Andrew, because the two of them hated each other, the sworn enemies kind of thing. So it seemed natural that he came to me after the rejection. Andrew and I had been good friends and Philip befriended me to get intel or something he could use against him. I wasn't mad about it, all the other way around. I was totally on board with his plan. The next two or three months, we spent a lot of time together, partly because we liked to talk crap about Andrew and bully him to a certain point, mostly bad rumors we spread behind his back, and partly because we had many other things in common, TV series, hobbies, song taste, etc. By the end of the semester, I came to realize I'd fallen in love hard for Philip. Sadly, this was not his case. Philip was technically straight, so I didn't try anything romantic with him. I later found out he knew of my crush anyways, it seems I suck at hiding my feelings, and just decided to ignore it so as to not damage our relationship. But things suddenly changed. He started acting coldly and treating me bad every time I tried to reach him, and at one point he confronted me about my crush. Not only did he reject me, but started calling me a clingy f-word, among other insults. Needless to say, our friendship was completely destroyed. Much later, I found out that during this time, Philip had been experimenting with his sexuality and was hooking up with another hetero-curious dude. When this guy decided he preferred his girlfriend over Philip, 
he basically turned his anger against me. I admit, I can be quite irritating sometimes, so it seems this is what made me the perfect bullseye for his hate. So here I am, second heartbreak in less than six months, that's my luck, but still not mad enough to do something about it, until I felt the backstabbing. I don't know how, when, or why, but some weeks after our fallout, Philip and Andrew had become best friends forever, those you dream of having when you're a kid. It was impossible seeing them apart while going around campus, at parties, or even in class. Rumor has it they were more than just friends. By this point, Philip was also out of the closet as a bisexual man. And now I was the one being bullied. Soon enough, after they started hanging out, gossip about me became the norm. I became known as a crazy stalker and obsessed little man. Hey, even Gollum from The Lord of the Rings seemed saner than I based on their stories. Additionally, any contact I had with Philip or Andrew ended in confrontation, to the point I had to actively evade them. That's when I decided to act, and what started as only a little prank ended being something deadly. Time came for the birthday party of a friend we all three had in common, and in which all our social groups will be reunited under one roof. She was a very popular girl. Me and my girl best friend Clara designed a little trick that would embarrass my two heartbreakers in front of everyone. It was very simple. We bought some Viagra pills, smashed them, and the plan was to mix it in some of their drinks to make them act up and get a non-stoppable erection during the whole party. Both loved using skinny pants, so we knew it would not only be very painful, but very visible too. Clarification, as med students, we knew mixing alcohol and Viagra could have side effects, so we calculated a low dosage for our prank. This will be important later. Flash forward, we're all in the party, and everything is going great. Too great, I'll say. I was very happy, and very drunk. I even thought of just letting my stupid plan go to waste and enjoying the party, but in the end, my bad judgment won. With Clara's help, it wasn't hard to slip the Viagra powder into my target's drinks while everyone was distracted. They sipped it whole. Minutes later, I could see the effects of the drug on Andrew as he was trying to get away from everyone on the dance floor while trying to cover himself. Fun fact, in Latin America, we tend to dance very close to each other. Pareo intenso, reggaeton, bachata, all those things. So it was actually very funny seeing him at the beginning trying to explain to every dance partner that he wasn't trying to assault them in the middle of the dance floor with his erection. All things said, he was very well endowed. You might be thinking, what a lame revenge, get out of here. But this is not the end. While Andrew was suffering the funny side effects, Philip was not that lucky. His friends were asking if anyone had some medicine for pain control as he was having a moderate migraine. Fearing I'd screwed up and given him more than what I wanted, I came to check on him to see if he was alright. What happened next was what led to the unfortunate events of the rest of the night. When I came close, he pushed me away very hard and threw me to the floor. He was drunk, excited, and had a headache all things making him more aggressive than usual. He started insulting me in front of everyone, shouting that I was trying to take advantage of him while he was sick. If not for some of the people around us that stopped him on time, he would have hit me in the face. In that moment, I snapped. I hated this guy. I hated him with all my heart. I hated that I was again the center of all the mean looks because of his dumb comments. I hated him so much, I decided I wanted him dead. 
Remember, dear reader, I was drunk. Under normal circumstances, I wouldn't have been able to pull this through. But the alcohol had weakened my moral compass and the anger had ended the job. I stood up, didn't say a thing against him, and went looking for the first aid kit. I'd been to my friend's house before, so I knew where it was, unlike Philip's group. I took a pill and handed it to the first one of them I found, telling her it was acetaminophen for the headache. She bought it, and I just waited. In fact, what I'd given the girl was a tablet of nitroglycerin I took from the kit. In my country, both look very similar so it's hard to tell them apart. Under normal circumstances, nitroglycerin is used for chest pain, but one of its main contradictions is its use with Viagra due to their potent combined effect. It can be lethal. I knew it. I didn't care. Soon enough, I heard the screams. Philip had fallen to the floor due to a drastic blood pressure drop as I expected, and everyone was already calling our version of 911. I'll skip fast what happened in the next few hours. The party obviously ended, and Clara took me to her house. She was panicking, believing our prank had killed him, and that we would go to jail for the rest of our lives. I was in my drunk supervillain stupor and told her to calm down, assuring her that our police system was so dumb they wouldn't find out. I cannot stress enough how drunk I was and the egotistical d-bag I can become when that happens. Meanwhile, Philip was taken to the ER where they rehydrated him and were able to stabilize him. So no, no murder happened that night, although it was close. The next day, I finally recovered my senses while being hungover. Now afraid of my stupidity, I used every means I had to find out what happened to Philip, and more importantly, if someone knew I was involved in all those things. Something essential here is that Philip was taken to our college hospital due to our friend living close to the campus. As I was doing my practices there, it was easy seeing his medical record, so this is the reason I know what's coming next. In brief, Philip had entered a state known as distributive shock due to the hypotension he suffered from the mix of Viagra, nitroglycerin, and alcohol. Luckily for everyone involved, he'd arrived at the hospital just in time and nor his brain nor his heart suffered permanent damage. His kidney had some kind of acute problems but nothing serious. On the other hand, no one suspected a thing about me. The doctors assumed it had been a bad reaction to the excess of alcohol and maybe a recreational drug at the party, as this wasn't uncommon to happen. Some tests were done but nothing came out, and after he completely recovered, they just decided to let it be. The police were not brought upon even once. The afterwards of all this is very curious. I assume that due to his near-death experience, Philip became more docile if you could say. The rumors about me stopped and, with time, our animosity towards each other faded. Same with Andrew. Later that year, I found a boyfriend, and my heart slowly recovered from what happened with the duo. This experience altogether also helped me realize I had some anger issues among other things, so I started to go to psychological therapy to work on them and to prevent something similar of ever happening again. To this day, no one knows what really happened that night and even my best friend just believes our prank backfired. Not that I'd actually intended to kill someone. And that's the end. Yeah, kind of heavy. If someone's wondering, I know the huge screw-up all this was, and as I said before, I'm not proud of it. I was very, very lucky nothing serious happened. On a side note, therapy helped me, so that's a plus. Honestly, this is overall just kind of a very shocking story. 
It's pretty clear that both Philip and Andrew were total jerks, and it sucks to have your heart broken like that. I think it's also fair to say they probably didn't deserve almost, or well, pretty much straight up attempted murder. I guess the positive thing is nobody died and there weren't any side effects, really? I don't know, it definitely was a nuclear revenge. And our final story of the day is from an anonymous poster. Psychopathic bully gets his head crushed in by one of his victims. This story is from my grandfather and takes place sometime around 1942 in a small town in Idaho. His memory is bad and so is mine, so take most details with a grain of salt. My grandpa was always a tough person, even when he was a child. A bit of a jerk even, but this was the 40s and people were different back then. He was also a small child and that attracted a lot of bullies. There was one bully, however, who was worse than most. His brothers would usually back him up, but this kid came along after his older brothers moved to a different school and left him with his younger siblings. This was the 1940s, so the bully got away with absolutely psychopathic levels of beatings, and he would sometimes involve friends to beat him in a gang. Great-grandfather wouldn't do anything, and he told him to be a man. So, he did. One day, Grandpa hid behind the corner of a building where he knew the bully passed every single day. When the jerk stepped past the corner, Grandpa swung a brick at his head as hard as he could. The kid's skull caved in. Grandpa described it as being like an ashtray, and he hit the ground. Grandpa can't remember if he died or just had severe brain damage, but nobody messed with Grandpa after that. If it was described as looking like an ashtray, I'm gonna say I would be very, very surprised if the person actually survived that. I mean, even in the 1940s, I'm kind of questioning how OP's grandpa got away with that. That must have been a real small town in Idaho. Cheating on me? Get HIV then. This is not my story. I just saw this on Facebook and thought it might fit here. So the story belongs to a Chinese man. I'll just translate it. I've suffered for at least six months. Finally, I can push her into the darkest pit of heck. It's a long story, so let me light up a cigarette and tell you all about it. I met my girlfriend when we were on the same vacation tour back in 2006. The first time our eyes met, I made a promise to myself that I have to make her my girlfriend. The process wasn't hard by any means. I just poured my truest, deepest love out to her to make her moved by my true feelings. I loved her. I truly, really loved her, but due to my job, I had to travel a lot. Sometimes I would be away from home for 15 days to a month. About six months ago, I noticed she had been showing signs of a cheater. She'd always try to hide away from me when she was on her phone, either if she was texting or calling someone. I'd just lay my eyes on her phone and she would turn it off. I could almost confirm that she was cheating, but I didn't have any kind of evidence. I have an email account that had been logged in for a good while but rarely used, and then one day, there were hotel bills sent to this email. I checked the emails and some other things, and found out there were some note lines about the bills. After that, there was nothing left to clarify. But one man's soul can't truly die when he wasn't dead. Me and some friends found out about the man she'd been screwing with, and the hotel's location. The first thing I felt when her cheating on me was confirmed was anger. I was furious, not a bit of heartbreaking. It's the feeling when you wanted someone to die, gone, disappeared. I wanted her to suffer and disappear. 
so reality has proved that money can solve anything. I found the way to contact the other man, his WeChat, it's like Facebook for Chinese, to be exact. I have friends that are really, really talented. Smart people if I could tell. I made friends with a doctor back in August last year. I told him my story and what was my plan, and also sprinkled in a bit of, you can have the benefit out of this too, of course I'll pay the money. He made up his mind for a few days and then gave me contacts of some female patients that have HIV. There was no mention about the strict policy in the hospital about patients' privacy. Out of three patients I've met, only one agreed. Most of the ones who have HIV haven't had a clean life. When you have the money, you can really control the devil himself. I gave her the other man's contact and an amount of fee and required her in the shortest time she could to give him HIV. This modern life made it really easy for a woman to sleep with a man. It only took her five days. I worried that one night wasn't enough for him to catch it, so I asked her to be his friends with benefits for a while and gave her around 2150 US dollars. My girlfriend still hasn't known anything. She did really fall for him. I knew it since reading her texts. About two weeks before that, she had a fever. A terrible, agonizing fever. We did hook up but I used protection. I told her to go to the hospital, but due to my job I had to be away for several days, so I couldn't make it to the hospital with her. I would pay a fortune to see her face when she found out about the HIV though. After two days, I went home and saw her being upset and all, and then after asking my friend at the hospital, it was confirmed that she had HIV. I was ecstatic, but I played it cool. I was the dumb boyfriend that hadn't known anything. She didn't know that I already got the info about her HIV. We're still being together for now. I want to witness with my own eyes her being slowly passing on the hospital bed. That's all. If anything's happened, I'll tell you later. So considering the story that I just read here, would you guys agree with me in hoping that this story is actually fake and not real? Also, unfortunately for this person, despite their attempt at, well, ending their ex-partner, nowadays HIV is actually extremely treatable, so it's not very likely that they're going to, you know, kick the bucket anytime soon. As far as the story goes though, would you agree with me that you hope this story was fake? Let me know in the comments down below. Our next story is from Sanity Contagion. Years of drunken abuse result in a blanket party. My aunt was an intensive care nurse at a hospital in Texas for 30 years. This is her story. A while back, my aunt tells me and my cousins the story, probably as a warning about drinking, I guess. For years, Mrs. Smith would come into my aunt's ER battered and bruised, apparently sometimes quite severely. The woman was getting up there in years and had almost monthly visits that sometimes required her to stay for a week or more. A quick rundown of some of the injuries I recall. Broken pelvis, explained by falling down the stairs in her one-story home. Broken arms, wrists, explained as falling out of her car. A shattered orbital bone in her eye socket, no explanation I can recall. A series of broken ribs, various excuses. Lastly, this jerk broke her back, which required fusing three of her vertebrae. Driveway car accident. So Mr. Smith is appropriately qualified as a total piece of crap. On the end of my aunt's 12-hour shift, the call comes in from the ambulance that they're bringing in a 70-year-old Smith. Faces fell, 
Everyone gets somber, knowing that Mrs. Smith probably won't survive the night due to the years of beating she's already endured. The ER calls the ambulance back, asking for a description of the injuries so the OR can be somewhat prepared. What they heard on the radio pissed everyone off. The paramedics were completely unprofessional. They were laughing their butts off as they described broken arm, broken leg, and lacerated scalp. When the ambulance pulls up, my aunt and several other ER staff are trying to read them the riot act. Instead, Mrs. Smith primly stepped out of the ambulance. The paramedics pull the stretcher out of the ambulance and wheel her husband inside. Enough is enough. Apparently, that's all she said. The paramedics had to fill in the rest of the story. So, here it is. Mr. Smith came home drunk one last time, and she wrapped him in a blanket and beat him with a cast iron frying pan. Mr. and Mrs. Smith never came back to the ER. Maybe he learned. Honestly, I sincerely hope that he did learn. It's honestly almost a little saddening that, after all this that happened from both sides, that in the end they still go home together. I just hope things were better for Mrs. Smith after that point. I mean, not showing up to the ER doesn't necessarily mean nothing happened. I guess really all we can do is just hope that everything worked out in the best for Mrs. Smith after that point. Maybe, literally, she beat some sense into her husband. By the way, if you're enjoying these stories, make sure to hit those like and subscribe buttons down below so you never miss any of my daily videos. Every video has awesome stories, like our final story of the day from YL0K, Won't Pay Me For My Work? I will ruin your business from the inside. For some context, this all happened to me just over a year ago. After telling the story to multiple people, some of my close friends told me that it would be appreciated here. To begin, I moved to the US from Germany about 5 years ago. My father found a steady job as an insurance salesman and my mother was a housewife for the first couple of years living in the United States. At this time I was only 12 years old and attempting to find friends in my 6th grade class. After about three years of living in a calm suburban town, my mother had become more increasingly bored as a stay-at-home mom, and she decided to start looking for a job. Eventually, she found a job translating for a new small options company based in the big city near my suburb. Her boss and CEO was probably the most narcissistic, arrogant jerk I've ever met, so we'll call him DB for D-bag. In addition to translating conversations, emails, and documents from foreign clients, she was also in charge of building the company's new website and managing all the docs and programs they had made. About a year later, after I turned 16, I was looking for a job, and I eventually started working for my mom's boss and his company because they were looking for employees and I was looking for employment. When I started there, I was put in charge of the website management because I knew a lot more about technology and computer stuff than my mother did. Before I continue further, I would like to explain a little more about Dbag's company. So basically, what his company does is create resources and tutorials for people who are learning about trading options or stocks, and their lessons weren't cheap. Clients varied in wealth, we had some very rich, and others looking for deals on a budget. This is important to the story. Anyway, I wasn't paid an hourly salary for my job with DB's company. I was paid a predetermined amount per task that I completed. It worked pretty well at first. DB would assign me a task to complete, and we would agree on a price for my time. Most of the tasks were tedious busy work no one in the office wanted to do. 
DB and I had only met in person a few times, and we mostly talked through emails. As with school, most of my work with the company was done on my computer at home. For a few months, everything went smoothly, and I made a decent amount of money for a kid my age. I didn't mind doing the work as it was very simple, just tedious, and I could watch YouTube while working at home, which was a win-win for me. Eventually, there came a time when I was paid a little less than what we agreed on. However, I noticed, but didn't really care, as I was still making a lot of money. I thought it was just a mistake on his end, but I was wrong. After completing more tasks, he started paying me less and less than what we previously had agreed on. When I eventually confronted him about it, he argued with me and said that he'd paid me the amount we'd agreed on, which I knew was a complete lie. There was even a time where he didn't even pay me at all. I was so sick of his crap. He kept making excuses about how I'm just a kid and I don't need to pay taxes or anything and he just went on and on. At this point, the only reason I still worked for this jerk was solely to get revenge. About a month later, I get a very important email from DB explaining that a new client just made a very expensive order and bought a copy of almost every course, document, and lesson that DB had for sale. My task was to revise all the documents in his order and create a folder to locate copies of all the resources. Like I said, it was easy work, but time consuming and everyone else had something more important to do. I told DB that I would start immediately and I would have the folder ready by the end of the week. However, this was a lot of work and I wasn't sure if DB was even going to pay me so I didn't do anything. By the end of the week, my inbox is exploding from emails from DB frantically asking about the folder. I said that I was really busy the whole week with school, but DB wasn't having it. He lost a client that he could have made tens of thousands of dollars off of. He called my phone, and when I answered, he started screaming at me and said I wouldn't be paid for my work, which I probably wouldn't have been anyway, and I was fired on the spot. I honestly didn't really care, as at this point, I really knew how much of a jerk DB was. I thought I was done with him, but sadly, I wasn't. DB then began harassing my mother at work, physically and mentally. I witnessed this when I went to visit the office with her. She eventually quit, but I knew I had to get back at DB once and for all, and I wanted him to really suffer this time. What DB didn't know was that I still had access to the website and I was an admin. I had access to all the resources of the company that they sold. Slowly I started to formulate my plan, and a great idea came to me. Disclaimer, I'm not sure if what I did here is illegal, but I know that DB deserved this. When clients approached our website, they filled out their email address or phone number. What I did was when a new client contacted me through the website, I contacted them with a fake email, and I gave them every resource they asked for, for free. This went on for months, and when DB heard the news that there had been zero new clients in months, it shattered him. He actually became depressed. At this point, it made me so happy to see him like this, and I knew I had to take it a step further. I began reaching out to regular clients too, and giving them all the company lessons and docs for free too. This was a small company, and it didn't take long. Pretty soon, the company started to go under, as they had zero sales for almost a whole quarter. After DB's company went under, his wife divorced him, and he was left unemployed living off his savings, which hopefully won't last him very long. I don't know all the details about what happened to DB after his company shut down, but I do know that his future isn't very bright at the moment, 
and he's a depressed alcoholic. The best part is that he will never know that it was me, and seeing the closed sign in front of his old office building every day makes me smile. I mean, frankly, a person like this who was running their business to be a jerk, literally abusing their employees, trying to steal money from kids, their work probably wasn't even the greatest of quality anyways. I don't think they really deserve to have that business, or at least have one that was flourishing. An awful person like that who's willing to go and do that to their own employees is basically asking for their whole operation to blow up when everybody leaves because who's going to work through that? Unless that's your last ditch effort and you need the money. I think what OP did here is fair game, even if in the legal eye it might not be the most legal thing. I don't necessarily think it's probably too legal to go and just hand out a company's internal documents like that. But honestly, DB probably wouldn't spend the money to go after OP anyways. My brother slept with my fiancé, so I ruined his life. No doubt you felt anger before. You stubbed your toe, you lost a bet with a friend, someone cut you off in traffic when you were already having a bad day. Whatever the case, we've all been there before. I'll experience that kind of passing frustration. But have you ever felt what I like to call deep anger? You know, the kind of anger that doesn't just leave. The kind that flares up like a normal case of red hots, rising and rising and rising, and then just stays there. The kind of anger that'll sit with you for days and weeks, if not months and years, boiling and simmering with untouchable heat until it can finally be released somehow. The kind of anger that can ruin your life or someone else's. I'm sure some psychiatrist type out there could give me some proper medical term for whatever it is I'm describing, but that's the name I prefer, deep anger. Anyways, if you haven't had the tragic luck of experiencing deep anger before, I pray to God you never do. I wasn't kidding when I said it has the potential to ruin lives, and I'm unfortunately not kidding when I say I know this from my own experience. It all started with my older brother. My brother and I have never had the best relationships, even before all the stuff I'm about to tell you went down. He was always kind of manipulative and two-faced towards me, in a way I don't know how to describe other than to say he would do something to mistreat me or take advantage of me and then try to convince me that it had been an honest mistake, that it would never happen again. When we were kids, his favorite thing to do would be to convince me to go out in the backyard with him to play a game of two-man baseball. When I would inevitably agree, having somehow forgotten what had happened the last time we played backyard baseball, we would go out there and he'd say something like, Alright OP, you can start out as the batter and I'll be the pitcher, like he was doing me some kind of favor. Then we would both get in our places, he would take the baseball, wind up in some super exaggerated motion, and then BAM! The ball would fly right into me, every single time. The first couple, I'd get some variation of, Sorry OP, I'm still warming up. After that, when I started to get mad, it would be, Come on, it's harder than it looks. Then, when he could tell that I was finally about to quit and run back inside, he would convince me to try at least one more pitch. Sometimes I would have the sense to refuse, but sometimes, for whatever reason, I would decide to give him another chance. When i do that, my brother would really make me pay for my stupidity. I'd get back in place, ready myself for the pitch, and then BAM! Right in the head, every time. I'm sure you're shaking your head right now at how dumb I was for falling for such an obvious trick. Well, I can't really disagree with that sentiment too much, 
Keep in mind that at this time, I was only 7 or 8 years old. I genuinely looked up to my brother, who was 4 years older than me, and I was willing to forgive him every time. He was never worth it though. That's just a small example, kind of a stupid one, but it's just one of thousands that I experienced day in and day out while I was growing up. And eventually, my brother's betrayal and manipulation reached levels that no sane person had any business excusing. Levels that I had no intention of excusing. The first step to getting to this level of betrayal and anger, besides, you know, all the stuff he did on a daily basis growing up, came when I was a senior in high school. When I was a senior, I'd gotten a girlfriend who I really liked. In hindsight, it was just a typical high school thing, nothing that serious, but at the time, this girl was basically my life. Bit of an exaggeration, but still, I spent almost every second of free time I had with her and talked about her in front of my family constantly. All that to say, my brother definitely knew what she meant to me and how much I cared about that relationship. Maybe you already see where this is going, but if you don't, let me explain. One day, I'm coming home from school earlier than normal. It's a Thursday, and normally on Thursdays, I have basketball practice for at least an hour and a half, two hours after school. But on this particular day, my practice had been canceled, so I'm getting back to my house earlier than I normally would. I'm excited as I make my way home. My girlfriend's supposed to be waiting there for me, which isn't an unusual thing at all. Like I said, we were really close and had been dating for probably like seven months at this point. So my family is very comfortable with her and she more or less can let herself in and out of the house as she pleases. When I get home, I see my girlfriend's car in the driveway like I was expecting. From the rest of the cars there, it looks like both my parents are gone and it's just my brother there along with my girlfriend. Anyway, I walk into the house and start to make my way upstairs to where my room is. I hadn't seen my girlfriend downstairs at all, so I call out her name. No response kind of weird but she probably just didn't hear me i walk into my bedroom expecting to see her there but she's not now i'm getting genuinely confused i'm nearly positive i hadn't seen her anywhere downstairs and it's not like this is a huge house with places i wouldn't have seen her i call out her name again still no answer confused i walk out of my room and start to make my way down the hall to where my brother's room is maybe he knows where she is I open the door to his room and start to ask, hey, have you seen when I'm stopped in my tracks? Bam. Just like the baseballs he would hurl at my head as a kid, I'm greeted by a sight I can only describe as utter betrayal. There, on my brother's bed, are my brother and my now immediately ex-girlfriend fully going at it. No clothes, no shame, no nothing. As you might imagine, I immediately fly into rage mode. What the freak is going on? What are you doing? I don't even know if I'm talking to my brother or my girlfriend, but I'm talking to someone. Words can't even describe how angry I'm feeling. A few minutes later, after they've both dressed themselves, I obviously break up with my girlfriend on the spot right then and there. She tries to give me some half-hearted excuse, but I cut her off immediately and just send her away. I'm not going to waste my time with any of that. There's no excuse in the world that can convince me to stay with her after what I just saw. So that just left my brother. While I'd been talking with my girlfriend, he had conveniently slipped away and gone back upstairs. But I'm not going to let him get off that easily. I walk back upstairs and head to his room. 
When I get there, he's just sitting on the edge of his bed, staring at the wall, obviously trying to look as remorseful as possible. I managed to stand there for a second before going right back into anger mode. Well, I basically shouted him, do you even have anything to say for yourself? I mean, what were you thinking? How are you going to betray my trust like that? Your wait, my brother interrupts me. Please just calm down for a second and let me explain. I was let you explain. Let you explain. What is there even to explain? Just hold on a second, he says. Please, please just calm down and I can explain everything. I'm still fuming, but I take a step back and make a motion with my hands like, go ahead. So he does. My brother proceeds to tell me his account of what happened. A long-winded, rambling story about how he'd been minding his own business in his room when my girlfriend had randomly barged in and started making really aggressive advances towards him. He had obviously tried to reject her advances over and over again, but she was so persistent that he eventually had basically no choice but to get in. And that's how we got here. He finishes telling his story, looking up at me like, I'm just supposed to drop everything now? Live and let live? The story's obviously BS, but I'm honestly just more defeated than angry at this point. The fury is giving way to sadness. Okay, I sigh and just turn around for the door. Wait, my brother jumps up off his bed. Wait, wait, listen, you gotta believe me. I wouldn't do anything to hurt you, I promise. Really? I just stare at him. Honestly, I... Listen, I made an awful mistake, but you gotta forgive me. I'm so sorry. He looks right into my eyes. I will never do anything like this to hurt you again. I swear. Ready to just be done with all of this over-the-top pleading, I nod. Okay, thanks. I hope you mean that. I do, he says as I walk away. After that day, he more or less stuck to his promise to me, but that didn't exactly entail too much on his part. I was a senior in high school, so only a few months after that day, I was off to college and away from my brother, leaving him with remarkably few opportunities to somehow betray me again. For the most part, I loved being at college and away from my brother, not having to constantly worry 24-7 about what he might be doing or how he was going to make my life miserable on a random Thursday was one of the most refreshing experiences of my life. When I would go home on breaks and holidays to visit, we would be cordial to each other. No nasty words, no shooting daggers, but it was always still a little bit tense. I never completely lost the feeling in the back of my head that I couldn't trust my brother that he was still trying to play me or take advantage of me somehow, but for the most part, I just tried to suppress that thought. I was away from home, so there was nothing he could do, and he was still family. Yeah, he may have been a jerk to me in the past, but he was still family. Fast forward about four years into the future, I've just graduated from college a few months ago, and I've been dating this girl I met there for quite some time. Looking back, there were more than a few red flags I should have noticed and done something about, but I'm stupid and naive, and at the time, I thought this girl is the one. As in, the one, the one. So much so, that I actually pulled the trigger and proposed to her after we both graduated from school. She says yes, if only she hadn't. We're so excited, I've never been happier, blah blah blah, the whole deal. So we set a date to get married, about three months into the future. Things are going amazing, I'm enjoying life, and it's just smooth sailing all around. 
What could go wrong at this point? Well, fast forward about another two months into the future. It's now just about a month before I'm due to get married, and my family decides to take a trip over the Christmas holiday. My parents are paying for the whole thing, so I'm all aboard. We end up going to this super nice resort right on the beach where we have great weather and a great view of water. It's me, my fiance, my parents, and my brother, and all in all, we're having a great time. For the first few days, that is. Then I start noticing some weird stuff happening between my fiance and my brother. Hard to describe stuff, but noticeable nonetheless. Weird looks between them. Sometimes I would walk into a room where they were and they would sort of jump to attention. Just strange energy between the two of them that starts to get the wheels turning in my head. At first I thought I was just being paranoid. I mean, this is my freaking fiancé for crying out loud. We love each other, right? She would never do something to hurt me. But as the days ticked away on our vacation and the looks and secretiveness and the weird energy not only continued, but seemed to be increasing, my suspicion got to the point where I wasn't even sure I would call it paranoia anymore. But still, it's not like I had any definite proof of anything. For all I knew, I was just being paranoid, and this whole thing had been completely made up in my head. Then I'd start to think about that day, four years in the past, when I'd come home, only to find my brother and my then-girlfriend. My thoughts continued to bounce back and forth like this, one extreme to another, day after day, until about a week into our vacation. I had had enough. I had to get to the bottom of all this somehow. I decided to lay a trap of sorts. One day, when my parents were planning on going into the local town to do some shopping, I told my fiancé that I was planning on going with them. She asked if I wanted her to go with me. I knew she legitimately wouldn't want to go. For whatever reason, she disliked spending time with my parents. One of those red flags I was talking about earlier. So this was the perfect opportunity to put my little plan into motion. No, I told her, it's fine, I'll just go with them myself. You stay here and rest up. So the three of us left, me, my mom, and my dad, leaving just my fiancé and my brother back at the condo. After about 20 minutes, I lied and told my parents my stomach wasn't feeling well, so I was just going to walk back by myself while they continued to shop. On the walk back to our condo, my heart was pounding, and I actually started to feel a little bit sick to my stomach. If my suspicions were true, and, well... I didn't even want to think about that. I was just being paranoid, and I was going to prove that to myself here and now, and be able to put this awful paranoia to rest. When I got back, I opened the door slowly and quietly creeped into the entranceway. I passed by the living room and didn't see anyone, so I continued past the room towards the hallways where everyone's bedrooms were located. Still walking as silently as I could, I turned the corner into the hallway, and BAM! Final fastball right to the cranium. There were only two people in this condo besides me, and the sounds coming from my brother's room were unmistakable. I wasn't being paranoid. I was immediately furious, of course, and I thought about barging into the room to confront them both right there, but for whatever reason, I decided to leave the condo. Somehow I didn't think it would be enough to just confront them. I had entered the purest state of deep anger I'd ever experienced in my life, and I needed actual payback. 
Not just a little bit of yelling, raised voices, a couple of how could you's. No, I wanted lives ruined, reputations slashed, futures shattered. I wanted actual revenge. I wanted to inflict pain. Remember what I said about deep anger? About how it can stay with you for days or even weeks? Well, I learned that firsthand. For the next two weeks after that day, I stayed as livid as I'd been from the very first moment. But the thing about deep anger is that it's fundamentally tactical. The fury runs so deep that you'll be able to pull off anything, do anything, pretend to be anything in pursuit of your new mission of pain infliction. So for the next two weeks, although I was absolutely red hot furious to the bone, constantly and 24-7, I never let it show. I had a plan. The first thing I did was break it off with my fiance. I didn't tell her why, didn't tell her what I discovered during the vacation, just packed up the things she had in my apartment, gave them to her, and kicked her to the curb, left to wonder what had happened. I obviously thought about including her in my plan for revenge, but honestly, the rage I had felt towards my brother completely overshadowed the anger I felt towards her. She had betrayed me, no doubt, but my brother, my brother had sold me out and spit on me, and I was out for blood. To understand the next part of my plan, there's one thing you need to know about my brother that I haven't told you yet, and that's that he's a former drug addict. During my sophomore year in college, he had become seriously addicted to a variety of drugs. I wasn't there for most of it, but from what I understand, it eventually got bad enough that my parents ended up giving him an ultimatum, get clean or get kicked out of the family. So my brother did get clean, got help, went to rehab, did the whole shebang. But as my parents and my brother both told me afterwards, the ultimatum remained. If my brother ever started using again, he would essentially be excommunicated from the family. No chance to explain himself, no wave goodbye, no contact, and he would even have no job because he was employed at the company our dad ran. So as the deep anger worked its way through my system and coursed through my veins, I zeroed in on that beautiful prospect, ruining my brother's life. I didn't think I'd be able to get him using again, and believe me, I would have tried if I thought there was a feasible way, but I did think there was a way that I could make it look like he had started using again. The first thing I did was buy a small amount of a certain drug I knew my brother had had a bit of a lust for in the not-too-distant past. I'm not gonna say which one, because I'm not sure if that's allowed, but let's just say that it took some dedication for me to find. I didn't care though, I would have gone full Walter White and cooked my own product if I had to. My brother was going down one way or another. The next thing I did was wait for a time when our whole family would be staying together under the same roof. I didn't get my chance until Easter holiday, when my brother and I would be staying at my parents' house over the weekend. Again, I didn't care. I would have waited a whole year if I had to. My brother was going down. All that was left then was to put my plan into action. I knew while we were there, my mom would insist on doing my brother and I's laundry. No matter how much I insisted back that I was more than capable of doing my own, and that she usually did laundry on Saturday afternoons. So when noon rolled around on that Saturday, I took the little special baggie I'd purchased for my brother, quickly snuck it into his room while he was preoccupied downstairs, and tucked the bag into the back pocket of some jeans on the top of his laundry basket. After setting the scene, I dashed back out of the room and prepared to wait. 
When I saw my mom going upstairs with a laundry basket 30 minutes later, I knew the time had almost come. Sure enough, not a full 10 minutes had passed before I heard my mom let out what I can only describe as a truly frightening yell. After the yell, she practically ran down the stairs and into the living room where my brother, my dad, and I were sitting. I noticed immediately she had the present I'd left for my brother in her hands. What the freak is this? She screamed at my brother. You cannot be serious right now. I could see the fear in my brother's face as he sat up in his chair. What the heck? What is that? That's not mine, mom. My dad stood up then, walked over to where my mom was standing, and took the bag from her. He examined it for a good second, then looked up at my brother seriously. You're done, son. You're done. What? My brother was losing it. I'm not even lying right now. That's seriously not mine. I'm telling the truth. My mom laughed sarcastically. Oh, you're telling the truth? Isn't that just convenient? Do you know how many times we heard that same story two years ago? We can't believe a word you're saying right now. My bro- Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. brother was basically on his knees now, begging my parents to listen to him. I know, I know. Believe me, I know. But you've got to listen to me now. That's actually not mine, I swear. I've been clean for the past two years. You know this. My mom sighed. I thought I did know that. I thought I did. But apparently it was all just another one of your great big lies. No, no, it's not. I don't know where that came from at all. My dad jumped in now. So what, son? You want us to believe that this baggie just magically teleported into your room? That someone snuck in there and planted it on you? I mean, come on now, give us a break. I know you can pull anything over us, but we're not that dumb. He says, but I didn't. Nope, nope, my dad interrupted. This has already gone on long enough. You knew what the deal was. Go upstairs, pack whatever you can into a duffel bag, and get out of here. You're done. He said, no, but I... I'm not going to tell you again. Go upstairs, pack your stuff, and get out. And don't even think about trying to show up to the office on Monday. You're done there too. He says, but dad, I need that job. What am I going to do in the meantime? Where will I even stay? My dad just shrugged. That's for you to figure out. Still in shock, my brother stood up from his chair and slowly made his way upstairs. Like he was being sent to the electric chair or something. I sat where I was, where I'd been the entire time my family was blowing up around me. Slightly shocked myself that the plan had worked so terribly effective. I noticed that my shoulders had unclenched, and that my jaw wasn't as tight as it had been. The deep anger was gone, along with my brother. After about 30 minutes, he came walking back down the stairs with a single duffel bag in hand. He started to walk over to my mom, like he wanted to give her a hug goodbye or something, but she lifted up her hand and pointed towards the door. Dejected, he slowly walked across the rest of the room, made it to the door, opened it, and walked out. That was the last time I ever saw my brother in person. 
The guilt started to hit me almost as soon as he made his way out of the door. I quickly realized, sitting there in my chair, as my parents silently walked up to their room together, that it wasn't just my brother that I'd punished. I had punished my entire family, had, if I was really being honest, torn my entire family apart just then, in the blink of an eye. Yeah, my brother had done some messed up things to me, and he maybe deserved to get some of the payback for all of the stuff he'd put me through, but my parents? I got up too then and made my way to my room. I wasn't angry anymore, just sad. The guilt was pretty bad then, but it was nothing compared to what I felt a month later. I was sitting in my apartment watching TV when I got a call from my mom. I picked up the phone and could tell immediately something was wrong from her voice. When I asked her what was wrong, she told me that she'd gotten a call from my brother earlier that day and that he was still using. She then told me that my brother was still claiming that the baggie they'd found in his room wasn't his, but that, just despite them, he had actually started using again. He's obviously delusional, my mom cried to me. I can't believe he would ruin his life like this. After that, I did my best to comfort her, but what could I say? When I hung up the phone, it all hit me. In the span of a single day, I had started a chain reaction that had led to my brother being kicked out of the family, fired from the only job he ever had, and inspired to start using drugs again. I still don't believe that there's any way he deserved all that. He may have harassed me since I was a kid, had been a key part in ruining two of the most important relationships in my life, but dang. All I know for a fact is that my parents didn't deserve any of this. If I could go back, the one thing I wish I could change for certain is my parents being punished by all of this. They always thought it was my brother and his addiction that was going to tear the family apart. Little did they know, it was going to be me and my anger issues. So in the moment, at the heat of everything, do you blame OP for what they did? After all of the childhood bullying and abuse from their brother, after having two of the most important relationships ruined for them like that, in that moment, do you blame OP for planning that stuff on their brother and getting them kicked out? Let me know what you guys think in the comments down below. Our Revenger got her stalker police officer imprisoned and got rid of her bullying neighbor at the same time. There's a lot of moving parts to the story, and I'll try not to lose anyone along the way. I'm a female in my late 20s, and this story took place a while ago. Let me start by saying that I was no angel growing up. My parents were very religious and cared a lot about what people thought of them. I, on the other hand, had a habit of taking things that didn't belong to me because I wanted them and my parents wouldn't get it for me. I was first arrested when I was 12 for shoplifting. I have something of a sweet tooth. One day I was trying to stuff some chocolate bars in my pants while in a store, and this shadow just appeared over me. The next thing I knew, these huge hands went into my pants and pulled out the chocolate bars. This was my first encounter with Officer Squarejaw. He was about twice my age at the time, and looked like he was the mold they made marines from. He convinced the store owner not to press charges and I was let go with a warning. I immediately learned my lesson and decided to change my tactics to more distant targets. I was 16 the next time I was arrested, this time it was for fraud. I got a fake ID and used it to get a job in a bar where I was skimming credit cards and using them to buy stuff. Officer Squarejaw just happened to be in the bar one night and caught me. This time I didn't get a warning, I was sent to juvenile detention or youth detention as they like to call it these days. 
Being locked up with a bunch of teenage girls is a lot like high school combined with a sleepover you can never leave. I was always kind of a loner. I wasn't really strong. In fact, I was actually very timid. So I was fish food from the jump. And I got jumped. Going through that on a nearly daily basis completely broke me. I know what you're thinking. She probably deserved it. Stealing from others is bad. And you know what? I agree with you. What I did was wrong and I deserved every moment of heck for the two years I was inside. I was a selfish person and I'm sure I hurt a lot of people with my stealing. I was alone for those two years because my parents couldn't handle the shame of a child in prison. They left town as soon as the judge banged the gavel. The person I spent the most time with in juvie was also the one who beat me the worst. We'll call her the Dean because she ran the center. The Dean was hardcore. She used to brag about how she had boyfriends all over town and separate phones for each one so they wouldn't find out about each other. When I got out, my real nightmare began. My parents wanted nothing to do with me after I went in, so I wasn't expecting anyone to be there to pick me up. But there he was, Officer Squarejaw. He was pushing 30 now, and time did nothing to mellow him out. He even came in his patrol car to take me back to town. After everything I'd been through the past two years, I was too scared to refuse a ride with him. He made me ride in the back because of regulations or something. Civilians can't sit in the front. The entire drive to town, he kept telling me how he wants to look out for me. That him arresting me was for my own good. And that now he'll take care of me. Make sure that I stay on the right path. When we got to town, he dropped me off in front of a diner that was his aunt's. And that he arranged with her to give me a job that I should start earning an honest living. The truth was, I was done with stealing, with crime in general. I just wanted to be left alone, which is why I didn't want to stay in the halfway house, and that meant getting my own place, and that meant getting a job. The town I lived in wasn't big, but it wasn't small either. Everybody didn't know each other, but you didn't need to ask a lot of people before finding somebody who knew you. In a town like mine, that means it's hard to keep a low profile once people start thinking you're a criminal. And since I was desperate for a job, I went into the diner and told his aunt I was there to work. In some way, I was relieved and grateful for the second chance. But Squarejaw still scared me. To her credit, the diner owner was a decent person, unlike her nephew. She hired me as a waitress because she said I had a pretty face. I don't remember anyone ever saying that to me before. She paid me fairly, which was completely unexpected, so I was really grateful. I worked hard, and eventually I was able to afford a place to rent. Squarejaw didn't want anything at first. He just hung around the diner when he was on lunch, and insisted on taking me home after my shift if he was around, always in the backseat. He made sure to drop me off in front of my apartment building and watch me go in. It wasn't a fancy place or anything. I could have afforded a slightly nicer place if I wanted to, even on my paycheck, but I was saving up my money for when my probation was over so that I could leave town. Up until that point, the ride home was the worst thing I had to deal with, which made what happened when I got home seem worse. My neighbors were nice people. I don't think they knew about me, and if they did, they pretended like they didn't. Their daughter, let's call her Miniskirt, she was one of those attractive girls who were also attracted to violence. She and her friends made the one flight of stairs to my apartment seem like an eternity. Some days there'd be no one at the top, and I'd just go into my apartment. Other days, she and her friends would be there and they'd either trip me or push me when no one was looking, and if people were around, they'd whisper horrible things at me. 
things they would do to me or get their guy friends to do to me. It was like they could smell the weakness in me. The worst part of it all was they were younger than me. Miniskirt was only 15. I don't know what was worse, the fear of being bullied or the shame that I was older than them. After a while, things with Officer Squarejaw started escalating. It seemed weird at first and didn't make sense. On the rides home, he would ask me random but oddly specific questions. He'd say like, how was the cheese-flavored two-minute noodles? You shouldn't eat so many Oreos because it'll affect your figure. It only clicked when specifically mentioning the brand of tampons I was using and asking if they were what worked best for me. I never told him any of these details, and I never went shopping with him. I later realized that he was going through my trash. We had communal bins outside the apartment, and I threw my trash away late at night because I didn't want to run into anyone. One night, after I realized that he'd been going through my trash, I saw his personal car was parked down the street, and it had a view of the trash bins. I recognized his car because he'd picked me up from home a few times on the way to work. He also made me ride in the back because he didn't want people to get the wrong impression. Knowing that he was out there watching me made me terrified. I couldn't sleep. I would spend most nights sitting by the window near the fire escape with the lights off watching him until he left. Only after that could I fall asleep. All those nights allowed me to get to know Miniskirt really well. Unlike the Dean, she only had one phone and she didn't want her boyfriend texting her because her parents checked her phone. So she would lean out of the window of her room and have these loud whisper phone calls with him. Apparently it was easier to delete a phone call than a whole night's worth of texts. It didn't take long to figure out who he was. We'll call him Kix. Kix and I went to the same high school. He was the same age as me. And the two of them were very intimate. I mean, all the way intimate. Some nights she would sneak out of the fire escape to go to parties with him. Things with Officer Squarejaw were getting worse. Because I was afraid to throw away my trash when he was outside, it started piling up in my apartment. I'd wait until the garbage collection was made and then I'd have to make two or three trips down to the bins. He was moody for the next few weeks after that. I was so scared in that back seat that I thought I should start throwing my garbage away like normal again. Then one day he was smiling when he picked me up and after that, I wished I never hid my garbage from him. He bought me a cell phone. He said that he noticed that I don't really talk to anyone and that it wasn't healthy, that a girl my age should be texting and making friends. I didn't want friends. I didn't want anyone near me or talking to me, but how could I say no? His number was already on the phone, so when the first message came in later that night, his name on the screen made it feel like he was standing in the room with me. I didn't read any of them that night. I didn't even open them. The next day, he asked me why I didn't respond to him, and I told him I wasn't used to having a phone, so I put it on silent so that I could get some sleep. He asked me why I wasn't sleeping, and I said it was because I was having nightmares from my time away. He said if I wanted, he could park outside my place if it would make me feel safer. I told him he didn't have to do that, but he insisted that when he didn't have a night shift, he would watch over me, like I'm an idiot who didn't know he was already doing that. From then on, he would just appear wherever I was when I wasn't at home or at the diner. He had put some kind of tracking software on my phone. I was too scared to delete it because then he would know that I found it. I also didn't have anyone that I could tell about it because who was going to believe me? I eventually stopped going out except to go to work and buy groceries. 
I would just respond to his first few texts at night and say I need to go to bed. After a while, he started getting bolder, suggesting that if I still feel unsafe that maybe he could spend the night with me a couple nights a week. He kept insisting that he was looking out for me and that all he wanted to do was protect me. I heard stories from some of the other girls inside of similar things that happened to them and how bad it got once they opened that door. I told him no as firmly as I could. He didn't like that. He said that I should think carefully about what I want in life because he is the best thing that happened to me because not even my parents wanted me. I had never been so scared in my life. The only other person that I spoke to was his aunt and she thought he was a model citizen. I had no one I could go to for help. Of course, Miniskirt decided that tormenting me at home wasn't enough. She and her friends came to the diner during my shifts. They would do things like complain that I messed up their orders, spilled their drinks, or that I was rude to them, all so that they could get free meals or discounts. All those free meals and discounts came out of my paycheck. They once even insisted that I had to pay for their dry cleaning after they spilled their drinks on it. Soon after, it completely escalated to them straight up demanding money from me. I realized that if this kept going on, I'd never have enough money to leave town and I'd be trapped there. It was like being back inside again. If I had to go through that again, I would rather end it all. This was my life for the first year after being released. One night while sitting by the window waiting for his text so I can get it over with and go to sleep, I overheard Miniskirt saying to Kix she wished that he'd paid more attention to her. And I thought to myself, you can have my problems if you want them. And suddenly, I had the dumbest idea of my life. All thieves are like squirrels. We want to have other people's things and we don't want other people taking our things. Every thief who's been doing it for a while has a little nest, somewhere they keep something aside. Before I was caught, I also had a little squirrel nest. I'd planned on going to it when my probation was over on my way out of town. I meant it when I said that I was done with stealing, but apart from a little bit of money, I'd also stashed a backup card skimmer. I was going to get rid of it, I promise. One day, when I knew that Squarejaw was on patrol and couldn't follow me, I went to my nest and collected the money and the skimmer. I wore the skimmer to work under my apron, waiting for the day Miniskirt and her friends showed up again. Miniskirt had a prepaid credit card that she liked to pay with. It was about a week or two of waiting when they finally showed up again. I gave them my best service to avoid the free meal, and when I got her credit card, I quickly copied it on my way to the register before settling their bill. That night, I waited until she was in her room and used their Wi-Fi to buy a phone online. I know, stealing Wi-Fi is wrong. I made sure to spread the payments so that she wouldn't notice a big charge. I specifically made sure that the delivery came to their place when no one was home so that I could collect it. When I took out the phone, I wrote the number on the packaging with a note saying, Let's talk. No names. I waited until Squarejaw was outside again and Miniskirt was at home before tossing it in the garbage. I made sure that he saw me noticing him in his car when I threw it away. I also made sure that there were no fingerprints on it, just in case the creep wanted to keep it as a souvenir. When I got back to my apartment, I went to the window and watched him go to the garbage to collect the empty package. He got back into his car and in seconds a message came through, hey why no names? I messaged back saying that I thought about what he said and that he was right. I said that I wanted to take things and because our history, I wanted to start again as if we were strangers. I mentioned how he'd known me since I was 12 
and that I wanted him to think of me as a woman and not a little girl anymore. I told him that I was going shopping soon to buy some new clothes to wear for him, if he wanted to make sure I was safe, from a distance. I picked a weekend when I knew Miniskirt was also going to be at the mall. I had two reasons for wanting to go to the mall. First, I wanted Squarejaw and Miniskirt in the same place at the same time. Second, I wanted to buy some new clothes that matched some of the clothes I'd seen Miniskirt wearing when she sneaks out. I used the cash from my squirrel nest to buy the clothes. That first weekend, I walked around the mall casing out the stores that had the clothes I'd seen her wear. I also tried to follow Miniskirt a little bit because I was carrying the phone I'd bought with her card, so I wanted the phone to be near the places she went as well. I bought two or three things because I wanted to spread out the buying. Squarejaw was unsubtly following me the whole day, which explained why he was only arresting 12-year-old girls. I started to text him a lot. I kept telling him how safe he made me feel and even that when I was small I knew I needed him. During our texts on the new phone, I told Squarejaw that when we meet in person, we should act like how we always behaved until it made sense for us to be together in public. He agreed, so he'd pick me up as usual, in the back seat, and drop me off at home. Miniskirt and her crew still kept bullying me, but I could take it this time. After a few more weeks of texting and shopping, Squarejaw was starting to get impatient. He wanted more, and it was time for the next phase of my plan. This part was really tricky. I had to wait until Miniskirt sneaked out again. I laid out all the clothes I bought that matched hers and would wait by the window watching and listening for when she left. The plan was to see what she was wearing, dress the same way or close to it, and then follow her to the party or wherever she went. It took almost two weeks of waiting before it happened the first time. Green skirt, pink top with orange stripes and black pumps. I put leggings on because I had at least that much self-respect, and I wore sneakers instead of pumps because I knew I wasn't getting a ride. I was dressed in a flash and out the door with my backpack before she got to the street. As I said before, the town isn't small, but it isn't that big either. There aren't that many places where teens hang out, and I'd been paying close attention everywhere I went to what the kids were saying, so I knew where they were going. Luckily it wasn't far, so I started to jog. I'd already texted Squarejaw telling him where I'd be if he wanted to see me in one of the outfits I bought for him. I got there before he did and obviously after the two lovebirds. I hung around outside until I saw Squarejaw pull up. I texted him asking if he liked my skirt. He said yes and that he thinks green is a good color for me. I asked him about my top and he said something about how I make pink and orange look good. I told him that I was going inside for a little bit so it would look like I'm doing normal teenager things, but that I wanted him to stay outside and watch over me. I went inside and quickly found somewhere to change outfits because nothing attracts attention like two girls wearing the same thing. Just as at the mall, I stayed only to have the phone near miniskirt a little longer, but I made sure to avoid her altogether. I did this two or three more times before moving on to phase three. This was the hardest part. The plan was simple. I needed to somehow convince Miniskirt that Kix was cheating on her with me. It wasn't that unlikely since we were the same age and in the same class before I was arrested. But I knew nothing about boys. I was always a loner and I just wanted to take care of myself. So I started having conversations on the phone around her for her to overhear when I knew she wasn't on the phone with sneakers. 
I was basically just saying things I heard some of the girls at the detention center say. They would say it when they wanted to get another girl's man. I was flirting with nobody on the other line. I'd say things like, she's too young for you, we used to be so good together, just any kind of crap I could remember or think of. I did this a lot near the window to her room when I knew she was home. I never used his name, but I dropped details about the classes we were in and things that happened at the school while we were there. I didn't know if it was working or not, but eventually I had to put everything into the final stage. I had been promising Squarejaw that he would sleep over soon and to be ready to come over and protect me. I got rid of everything, all the clothes, the skimmer, everything other than the phone. I was ready. I waited for a day when she and her parents were home and Squarejaw was on duty. I texted him and told him I needed him to take care of something for me and he had to come immediately. The other girl said that's what they did, so I was really hoping it would work. I then went to the window and called her out. When she stuck her head out, I told her that I've been seeing kicks and that she should just back off. I went inside and closed my window. I knew she had a temper, so I went to my front door and waited for her. I wiped down the phone and put it on the table. As soon as she knocked, I opened and she hit me in the face and started screaming and swearing at me. I'd received much worse from the dean, but I also knew how to make it look good. So when she hit me, I made sure to also hit my mouth on the table. I smiled a bloody smile and told her to check my phone and see what Kix and I had been up to. She picked it up and started scrolling through it. Obviously, she was confused because all those texts were between me and Squarejaw. At that moment, her parents came in to see what was going on. That was my cue. I started crying, saying that she'd been bullying and robbing me, and that when I told her I'd call the cops, she said her boyfriend was a cop, and that she texted him to come sort me out. Her dad saw the phone in her hand, and she claimed it wasn't hers and that she was only holding it because I said I had texts with her boyfriend. He said he didn't believe her because he saw the charges on her credit card for a new phone. He took it from her and started scrolling through the messages. It was all there dates and times when she went to the mall, nights that she snuck out and the outfits she was wearing. Her mom immediately recognized the outfits as her daughter's. They read through a lot of the messages about how safe she felt with him and how even when she was small she needed him. Right around that time Squarejaw showed up, his first words were, baby what happened? What happened next was not my intention and to this day I still regret it. Miniskirt's dad attacked Squarejaw. In hindsight, it was obvious why you would do that, but I didn't have a dad like that growing up, so I didn't see it coming. Squarejaw lived up to his name. He took it right on the chin and then beat the crap out of her dad and arrested him for assaulting a police officer. All I hoped for was her parents to accuse him of being a creep and threaten him so that he'd be too scared to come near me again and for them to keep their daughter away from me. It took a couple of days for everything to be sorted out, Miniskirt's mom went to the press with the phone and the texts. The cop traced his phone and cruiser and matched it to the dates and times that Miniskirt was at those places. Miniskirt realized that she couldn't tell her parents that she snuck out with kicks because he was 19 and she was 16, because she actually loved him I guess. So she lied and said Squarejaw was her boyfriend. The cops let her dad go because they didn't want any more publicity and I think her family moved away after that. Squarejaw was arrested later, but he never said anything about me because I think he knew how it would look. 
The city didn't want to have any issues with me, so they reduced my probation and I was allowed to leave town sooner. All in all, I'm really sorry what happened to Miniskirt's dad, and maybe them having to move away, but I'm more than glad I'm free of those two nightmares. P.S. I never stole again after that. Not even Wi-Fi. P.P.S. I'm a kindergarten teacher now. Let me start off by saying that when you're in trouble, even if you feel alone, please reach out and ask for help. OP clearly had a plan and it worked out, but that plan could have gone sideways and they could have suffered a lot more harm. Another takeaway I'd pull from this is basically that, while crime worked out for OP here, crime obviously doesn't pay. I know it's cliche to say, and oftentimes the temptation to use crime and revenge is near irresistible, but really I'd hope people could avoid relying on crime to solve difficulties. Should OP have reported the stalker police officer? If they even reported them, do you guys think the police would actually do anything about it considering they're a member of the force? Let me know what you guys think in the comments down below. My mother destroyed my childhood, made me fail out of college, and laughed when I was homeless. I destroyed her entire freaking life. After almost 25 years of violent abuse by my mother, I finally got the kind of revenge I've always dreamed about as a kid going through the worst of it. But it didn't make me feel the way I expected. I'm sorry this post is so long. Reddit's the only place I ever really talk and write about my life in detail. I'm also sorry to all the people who suggested I take the high road. I didn't. You were alright. It didn't make me feel better. I know the deliberate steps I took to purposely ruin my mother's life makes me a bad person. I'm willing to accept that and I'm going to continue trying to become the person I believe I can be. You can skip to the end if you don't want a rehash of my subpar life and would rather read an update. Lastly, if my sister ever reads this, I'm sorry I wasn't a better brother. Rehash. For those who weren't aware of my life, I'll try to summarize it all, but it's not something that's easily put into a short paragraph or two. Growing up with my mother was worse than heck. If you've ever wondered what it would be like if your worst enemy went back in time to raise you, you'd understand my life. At some point around 9 or 10, I began to realize how alone I was and how exhausting my life would turn out to be. I kept hoping this time she'd finally just continue wailing on me, hoping she'd just never stop and finish the job. Either that or I'd be so close to gone she'd be forced to take me to the hospital where they would question her and I'd somehow be saved. It seemed like nobody ever cared enough to look deeper. Dislocated my shoulder with a cast iron pipe, hurting me every night until I ate things I was slightly allergic to and then hurting me more for throwing it up. Lit my Christmas presents I got, then having to be held back by her boyfriend at the time because she was holding a knife to my neck telling me for the millionth time that I was worth less than my father and nobody else would care if she did it. I could fill pages with all the things she did to me. I remember when she really started digging in and telling me I was worthless nearly every day. I was 13, and it was the first time I started contemplating ending things, though I was always too weak to follow through. My mother tried to get rid of me three or four times if you count a half-attempted poisoning. I say half-attempted because I vaguely remember the details, but... It involved her forcing me to consume something that had bleach in it. It's kind of funny in a sick way because I didn't even remember that until now. And that's not as bad as all the things I've put a lot of effort into not remembering. I just have a crappy memory so I guess it helps. 
I don't think I've actually went longer than a few weeks without being beaten bloody over something trivial, like not washing dishes fast enough or walking away too hard after just getting hurt by her. Years of physical and psychological attacks. Did I call the cops? Of course I did. Can you imagine how hard it was to watch my mother smile and lie to the cops, telling them I was exaggerating? Then having to watch them get into their cars and drive away knowing I had to go back inside? In the beginning, I had hoped things would change. Towards my teen years, I started drinking and stopped caring. And now here I am after all of it, somehow still alive. My stepdad used to tell me years after his divorce with my mother that he only stayed with her because he was afraid she'd be successful in getting rid of me one day. He's lucky he never saw how much worse it got when he wasn't there to take the hits for me anymore. It would break his heart. He was also the one who told me about my mother's being assaulted while growing up in a different country, which helped me gain some perspective in my teens. Not that it made much difference by then. It didn't matter to me because each and every day she had a choice every time, and she'd choose to hurt me every time. Maybe I'm overstating things considering that she didn't actually end me even though she's come close many times. Maybe that means deep down she secretly cared about me or something? I don't know. I don't think about it. She did go out of her way to buy me new electronics often, but she'd end up using those as leverage against me and invading my privacy constantly so it ultimately wasn't that much of anything. After everything and all the time she kicked me out from 13 to 17 years old, I was always on edge. She told me when I was 18 that I was staying with my aunt, that if I went to college, I'd always have a place to live. I don't know why I believed her. I'd went to go stay with my aunt temporarily for four to six months after my mother kicked me out of the house at 17, but my mother would always stop by and buy groceries for me or leave me cash. She was unnaturally kind to me while I was there. By this point, she wasn't hitting me anymore. Not that she could as I would have snapped and absolutely wrecked her stuff at that age. But I strongly dislike hurting people in any form so the point is moot. And was more so prone to just verbal attacks. But since I was never really around her anymore, life seemed to get easier. My mother had learned more than enough ways to screw with me without touching me. It seemed like she hated me more than I hated myself at times. My aunt couldn't have me stay with her anymore as she really liked her privacy. I'd already been there for a while and I was an emotionally damaged and rebellious teenager. She didn't have time to help. So I went back to my mother's house for the last time and started attending community college full time. I didn't really have any desire or passion. I was just an empty husk going through the motions but I was still trying my best to keep living, even when I didn't feel the will, in the hopes that one day I'd feel something different for once. My mother, of course, decided to go back to her old habits. Things like dumping all the trash with dirty diapers and old food or dirty dishes filled with water on my bed when I was out if I forgot to do them, and sometimes just because she was in a mood. Locking me out in the snow for hours because I didn't respond to a text or something, even if I had class in a few hours. I wasn't even allowed to have keys. She would pretend not to hear me when I rang the doorbell or knocked for hours. She'd also tell my younger sister to ignore it. I'd eventually end up having to sleep on the steps outside or at a friend's house and get punished for doing it, even though I was 18, because it was her house and her rules. It was always non-stop. 
I had no real direction and I honestly had no plans to exist past 25 years old. Despite literally all of that and then some, I was doing well in school, community college, with a 3.6-ish GPA. I finally left my mother's house for the last time a few days before finals week. I came home from drinking with friends and was met with my mother glaring at me when I rang the bell at 9pm, yelling when I'd move out as soon as I walked in. She followed me to my little closet of a bedroom where I tried to close the door behind me and she half ripped the door off the hinges. I just sat there on my bed and stared at her silently as she kept cursing and screaming questions at me. My mother then walks away and as I'm in the kitchen getting juice, I hear her on the phone calling the cops on me, claiming she was scared I'd kill her or my younger siblings. I just didn't have the energy to deal. This was three days before I failed all of my finals because I couldn't even make it. I was dealing with too much. So I went and grabbed whatever I had and left 15 minutes later. My mother and I only ever really communicated via email after, though it was very rarely and it was very business-like. I'd tell her what I needed and she'd either tell me to buzz off or give it to me. It was hard to maintain consistency in my life then. I was at rock bottom all the time. I didn't care about anything, I drank every day, and hung out with the worst kinds of people who brought out the worst in me. I bounced between cheap rooms and couches. It was early 2016 when I discovered photography and it completely changed the direction of my life. I didn't hang out with anyone or bother trying to maintain all the pointless relationships. I just dove headfirst into it. I was able to put the things I didn't understand about myself into perspective. For the first time in my life, I felt something. Not like a feeling per se, just like this sense of possibility. For the first time, I was seriously wondering just what I could be capable of. I had something to look forward to. I felt like if I pushed myself as hard as possible, I'd be good at something and I'd be a good person. And so I isolated myself from nearly everyone I knew and spent every single day learning or practicing or being frustrated that I wasn't getting results. Even though I was drinking heavily, I always held a job and kept doing photo shoots and kept practicing like mad. I eventually got my first apartment and was functional for a year. Did I have my crap together? Heck no, but I was figuring my crap out. Cue one of the worst days of my life. Me getting robbed while I was blackout drunk for two months rent and camera gear by a friend which led to me losing my apartment and job, followed by an email by my mother asking how I'd been. We ended up talking on the phone and it was civil for like three minutes before I mentioned how hard things have really been for me. She was bragging about some new expensive speaker system she bought and I like an idiot asked her for money, about a hundred dollars. I told her if I could give my landlord anything, he'd be reasonable and give me time to get more cash together and I'd be fine. That obviously didn't go well at all. It all escalates to her literally laughing and then telling me it was my own fault for being homeless. She also completely denied ever abusing me when I stated I was in the situation because of her. I hung up on her. My thoughts were all over the place and I felt this intense frustration more so than anger. Within a few moments, my head cleared and I decided something as I was sitting in my bedroom five or so minutes after the call. I decided that I was going to completely ruin my mother's freaking life no matter what. Revenge? And so I did. 
I called CPS on her and informed them of my history of abuse at her hands. I informed them about the dozens upon dozens of old photos I have of myself all bloody and bruised. I previously compiled as much evidence as possible in my teens, though never did anything with it until that point. That sparked a visit which led to an emergency removal of my three younger siblings when they caught my mother punishing my little sister coincidentally when they happened to do a visit. My mother was also arrested but released hours later. I reached out to the job she got years ago with the fake resume she made me write for her and made them aware of her falsehoods. Because of her field, it was promptly looked into and she was fired as well as blacklisted. She lost a nearly $80,000 plus salary. I then deleted every email and all of the email accounts I made for her because she never changed the passwords. Afterwards, I deleted the email accounts themselves. Within a few weeks, things were definitely going downhill for her. My youngest sister's dad was engaged to my mother and is now trying to file for sole custody of my little sister who's in CPS custody. I'm sure he wasn't happy finding out what his baby daughter had in store if my mother was given free reign. She missed her card appointments, and I know she hasn't been able to pay her mortgage since last year, as I've heard she had to ask one of her friends for money. Her life had become a creamy, messy, poop symphony, and I was the fecal splattered conductor. It was all going to crap. She went radio silent for months and had a warrant after missing another court date. This was all fall slash winter of 2018 that she was off the grid, so I went on with my life. Early 2019, I get a random call from her and find out she went to her home country months ago after everything went to crap. How was she allowed on a plane? I have no clue. So cue another geyser of BS spewing from my mother's mouth. She's telling me I need to tell Child Protective Services she's a good mom and that she's never abused them or me. It's unbelievable. So I cut her off and I shut her up. I was a little buzzed when she called and had always mentally prepared for this moment. I started slowly telling her in graphic detail about all the gross stuff I used to do to her food because screw it. I told her how I used to pee in the pitcher of the Lipton iced tea she used to force me to make for her and then not allow me to have. I told her how I'd secretly sabotage her utensils with my butt cheeks before serving her food. She was quiet at first, but then began cursing me out. Though it didn't bother me, I'm on a roll and I wasn't listening. Her words didn't matter to me anymore. She's blaming me for her life turning out so terribly, while fully unaware of how true that statement is in terms of the situation she was currently in. She shuts up long enough for me to get one more word in before hanging up and blocking her number. I thought that was the end of it. I expected my last post to be my final update, but as I've said before, my life is a crap symphony. The official update, my aunt and I recently reconnected about two months ago. Prior to last month, I haven't seen her in years. We met up and had a long conversation about life and everything, and then she admitted that she talks to my mother nearly every day. She had mentioned all the things that happened to my mother, but didn't know it was me who started this all. She actually felt really bad for my mother, but my aunt was always a really caring person, so I understand, I guess. I told her I was very uncomfortable with the thought of her talking about me to my mother and asked her not to. My aunt did it anyways. After meeting up with my aunt, 
I learned through her that my mother was finally coming back to America. She was arriving at the airport in one week. The problem was, my aunt told her that I was going with her, so the three of us could all talk without telling me. I didn't know what the feeling of betrayal really felt like until my aunt told me that. To be honest, as wrong as it sounds, I'd rather my mother just think I died or something on our phone call. But my aunt kept insisting that I had to give my mother another chance, and I had to learn to be open-minded and that though she wasn't there all the times, my mom did horrible crap to me. She loved us both and wanted us to get along. Like I'm supposed to just get along with someone who's tried to end me? Like she's choked me awake for school. If you don't know what it's like to forcefully wake up not being able to breathe and seeing your own mom standing over you at 5am angrily and tightly gripping your throat, count yourself lucky. But as I said at the beginning of the post, I've already resolved myself to being a bad person, and so I lied to one of the only people who was kind to me, and I promised to my aunt I'd try to have a heart-to-heart with my mom and her, and talk out the nearly 20 years of abuse. Obviously, that was not happening. When we got off the phone, I called the detectives, who gave me their number months back in case I heard from my mother. I asked them a few leading questions about what would happen if so-and-so were discovered, and then I made my plan. I wasn't sure if my mother would make it past customs. How was she able to travel to a different country with a warrant? I didn't know, but if she did, I'd call the police in the bathroom and wait for them to arrive while I sat with my mother. Cue my mother making it past freaking customs because she's my mother. She's a horrible person, but she's good at what she does, which is being horrible. I digress. My mother calls my aunt when she's getting off the planes, and my aunt says she's going to meet her. I told my aunt I'd wait for them in the little Starbucks, and then we'd all drive somewhere else. My aunt agreed and went off. I called the detective and told them that my mother was standing a few feet away from me, and if they could meet me at our destination, we were going to. They told me that was unnecessary and that they'd have officers closer to me come and apprehend her at the airport instead. And so I waited and waited, and then I finally saw them arriving, both at the same time. The three to four officers who had convened in those few passing minutes and actively searching around the food court I sat close to. My mother and my aunt walking down the gate towards me. I felt this overwhelming weight in my chest just kind of settling down deeper and deeper into my gut the closer they got and the more the officers searched. What if they stopped looking when my mother arrived? What if my mother somehow got away with this crap again? Countless thoughts, but I bit them back. I've grown very talented at silencing whatever my inner turmoil of the day happened to be, but my mother and my aunt were animatedly talking as they made their way to where I was sitting. Before they had a chance to say anything, I quickly jumped up and said, I ordered some teas, let me go see if they're ready, which was the first thing I could think of as they were sitting, but it worked and I dashed off past the cash register to the Starbucks and to the outer part of the food court. Looking back, saying I had to go grab some tea probably wasn't the best thing to say, but I digress. I made it a few feet out the door and half-jogged over to the officers who were still looking around the food court area. From where they were, they wouldn't have seen us sitting. I walked over and asked them if they had gotten a call about a woman who had a warrant or something. I mentioned that the detectives said officers in or near the airport would arrest her. They said they did, and I told them it was my mother. I told them her first name and they verified her last name. 
I told them she was sitting right in the Starbucks waiting for jail, and one of the cops chuckled, seemed a bit surprised and judgy that I was pointing them right to my mom. I told them I'd go make sure she didn't leave, and they followed behind by like 10 to 15 faces. I half jogged back inside and up to the little table where they were sitting. My mother had that half scowl she always wore whenever she looked up at me. When I popped up out of nowhere, and my aunt began asking me where the drinks were, before I cut her off and looked dead at my mother and her scowling face, which had quickly turned into confusion when I'd finished my sentence. Mom, I know we don't get along, but I wanted to let you know it's all my fault. Cue my mother starting to ask me with this kind of soft motherly voice, what do you mean it's your fault? Why do you think? But of course I cut her off because there's nothing she hates more than being cut off and I finally have the power in the situation. I say, look, witch, I want you to know exactly whose fault it is and whose pee you drank while you're sitting in jail wondering why the world did you so wrong. She sputtered something and slapped the freaking crap out of me. My aunt's jaw dropped. People are watching. The cops saw it happen as well, as only a few seconds had passed from when I walked in. Into handcuffs she goes. Now she's showing her true colors cursing and saying all kinds of things you couldn't imagine a mom saying to her kid, telling me she'd freaking kill me and so on, etc. I calmly walked behind them as long as I could until they took her to some room and held her until the detective arrived. I wasn't there that long, as the lack of thrill of it all kind of got to me, and I went home to break a two-month sober streak. I was there long enough for my aunt to tell me she was disappointed in me and that she doesn't know if she can forgive me for doing something so spiteful and disgusting to her sister. To be fair, I did it completely out of spite, so she isn't wrong. I've already acknowledged I'm not a good person for what I did. Come to find out, my mother was using my aunt's passport to leave and come back to the country multiple times since she left. That's why they never caught her. Now, my aunt has some explaining to do, but I wish she didn't have to get caught up in all of this. She's always been kind to me and doesn't deserve it. My mother's facing up to 10 years just for using my aunt's passport alone, and a slew of other charges, including one for child endangerment. Her husband left her. Her kids were taken from her. Her friends have seemingly distanced themselves from her from what I know. After 19 years of abuse, I finally get my revenge and none of the charges have anything to do with me, which is interesting. Did it feel good? No, I felt nothing. Just the rise and fall of the situation, but nothing really concrete. I expected to feel something. Not even satisfaction or happiness, but something. Either way, the only thing for me to do is to continue working towards the person I want to be. She told me constantly that I was worthless and that I'm nothing. I've told myself the same consistently as well in the past. I've decided that I'm going to become one of the greatest photographers of my time, and I'm going to push myself as hard as possible to succeed, so that anyone else who has ever suffered how I have now have no reason to doubt themselves or their ability to be great one day. As for me right now, I currently live in a homeless shelter. I decided to go to one six months ago after realizing all the drinking and inconsistency was making it hard for me to move forward. I wasn't saving money and was couch hopping from friend's house to friend's house. A few weeks ago I got a voucher from the government and sometime in the next two months I can find a one bedroom or studio apartment. I've been aggressively saving my small checks. 
I've been practicing and working on building better habits and just being a better photographer. I don't make much right now, and I know many people will say it's a stupid dream, but I know if I put all of my effort into making this work, I can not only be a self-sustaining photographer, but more than that. My situation is embarrassing, and it's hard, but I know I won't be here longer than another few months. It's not some dream, it's a plan. I'll also be going back to school in the fall and pursuing photography. As for my siblings, that situation is still a bit dicey, and I don't think I'll give an update about that, but they're all doing very well. As far as my mother's concerned, as horrible as she was towards me, the only part of me that even thinks about her on rare occasions hopes she isn't having a horrible time. I don't like knowing that people are hurting. This is definitely a story where you just can't help but feel bad for OP, but... I think we can all agree that we're rooting for OP to continue to move forward and become a better photographer and be able to support themselves doing the things they love. Another person that seems caught in the crosshairs that OP seems rather conflicted about is their aunt. And sadly, I think the aunt is just one of those people that wants to help out anybody they can, you know, they don't want to upset anybody. But clearly their interest in trying to maintain relationships with everybody and keep everybody happy together led to them making some terrible decisions for themselves. Giving up your own passport and allowing somebody to fly around out of the country and back in when they've got a warrant out for their arrest? Like as much as you love your siblings, you're really putting yourself in the crosshairs there potentially. Considering everything that happened here and where the mom ended up, do you think the ultimate punishment here for the mom was worthwhile considering all they had done for so long? Or do you think 10 years minimum in jail is not enough and should be even longer? Let me know what you guys think in the comments down below. I crushed my ex-wife's hopes after she cheated on me. Bit of background, I'm 36-year-old male as of now. The characters have been a bit altered by their names. Rebecca, my ex-wife, now 34. James, my college buddy and the guy Rebecca cheated on me with. Saladin, my other guy friend. And Lisa, Saladin's cousin. So, Rebecca and I were what you call college sweethearts. We survived college and the hardships of life. Got married in our early 20s. I was 25. She was 23. Ever since we got married, things were rocky. Not from the start, but situation-wise. I was in medical while she was an accounting major. There were things that were okay with me, but was not with her. Despite being married, she acted like she was a free bird. She was. It's a good thing, but there was marital neglect from her side. 2016, she joins James's company as an accountant because it pays well. I was happy because, hey, he's a buddy of mine. Slowly, she started to complain about things that were in place. She didn't like where we lived, had problems with everything I did. She didn't like the foods she used to. I'm a great cook, and she loved my foods. Our fights intensified by a margin where she would call me names, I'm good for nothing, she earned more than me, coming to this part later on. Drastic turn here was that Rebecca and James were hanging out with our set of mutual friends. I got the word of it and it seemed off. I confronted both of them, to which they both said it was a sudden plan, and I was out in field. Coincidentally, it happened on the same day I was out of the city. They might have planned it beforehand, which I'm not sure of. 2017, the year my marriage blew up. 
So I was sure there was something because my bedroom became a freaking dead one. I was increasingly paranoid and whenever I tried to address things, I was turned down. Now I'm not a saint. I constantly yelled at her to tell me what was going on because there was just something off. Your favorite person rarely talks or does stuff with you and they claim it's nothing? Does that sound okay? It was also the year that we were at our peak financially because our debts were paid off. My friends and I decided to open up a medical shop that provided medicine shop as a side venture. So one of the friends was Saladin. He proposed that we celebrate it at a pub. When we go there, I notice a girl that looks exactly like Rebecca. She was dancing with another man and it was quite dark. I get a closer look. Lo and behold, it's Rebecca and James dancing hand to hand. I wasn't much bothered about it because, hey, they're friends. I was here with my colleagues and she was there with hers, but it was bothering me. I decided to send her a text asking where she was. She's usually on her way home at this time. She told me she was already at home. Now that was a red flag. I told her to stop lying because she wasn't. I could clearly see her that she was getting paranoid and told me she was on her way. She left the pub afterwards. That night, I asked her about James. The look she gave me was as if she saw a ghost because she was not expecting that question. That look was what told me something was definitely up. If you ask your significant other about a friend, they should act normally, but the way she acted was abnormal. That night itself, I snooped on her phone. Curiosity was killing me. The password was changed so I couldn't see the phone. The next day, I saw her password and snooped through it. There were hundreds of thousands of texts right there. Countless inappropriate photos, calling him daddy, degrading comments. My wife and I made a vow to each other that if there was ever anything we needed to explore, we would be transparent to each other. She broke that vow too. She confided in him about how much thrill she felt that night at the pub. I went through everything. What hurt the most was she herself told me if one of us ever got bored of the other or needed to spice things up, we'll let each other know. She destroyed everything. I couldn't look at her the way I used to anymore. I cried the night and confronted her stupidly without any evidence the next morning. She yelled at me and stormed out after telling me I was abusive and insane. She told all of our friends that I was abusive. That afternoon, they all created a messenger group where everyone ganged up to troll me. When she came home that night, she told me that she was in love with James and wants a divorce. I told her to talk first, but it turned into her berating me. I yelled at her and she called the cops. I was asked to spend the night elsewhere. I went to my sister's and when I returned the next morning, James's car was here. He spent the night here. There was nothing needed to explain. He was doing it on purpose. Heck, she was doing it on purpose. I went to see a lawyer. As we didn't have a prenup, she had already filed a complaint about me being abusive. It didn't look good for me. Not once did she try to apologize. Not once did she try to make amends. Our country's laws don't count infidelity as a fault. So even with that, she's entitled to half of my everything. But her complaint can sue me up. Few days after that, where I was still living with my sister, I tried contacting Rebecca, but she won't reply to me. Rebecca hit me up, telling me that we should get divorced. That's it. 
12 years of relationship, 4 years of marriage, and she ends it with a text. I was freaking convinced that James was taking my place. She handed me the divorce papers. Everyone from our friend circle was convinced that I was a freaking abuser and James was her savior. She did the right thing to cheat on me. We were officially divorced during the start of 2018. She was already dating James open during our divorce. He was her life. I lost my job, my house, my reputation, and her little affair. I had to change the city to move someplace else to restart again. Saladin helped me massively in that fresh start. He got me a decent paying job that was nowhere near like my previous one, but it was better than the rest. We became close buddies while I was working to earn back what I had. Dating life was over for me. I just couldn't trust anyone. It was a complete no contact between me and Rebecca. Last I heard, she moved in with James. They were doing great. Revenge part, end of 2020, my life was actually blowing up. COVID helped our cause with broken backs, but filled our pockets. Our pharmacy venture turned huge, so I was able to make a lot of money. I met a friend of mine from whom I got a tip that James and Reb were done. James cheated on her and left her, but Reb had a child with James. He was absent since birth, so he didn't sign the birth certificate, so Reb is raising that child as a single parent. She tried dating, but she wasn't over me or James. The audacity. Part of me was happy with it, but gosh, I really missed her. I sent her an email asking how she was doing. She wasn't expecting to hear from me. We exchanged emails and reconnected. Our first meet was in 2021 after several years. She looked like crap. She gained weight, lost the charm, and looked utterly exhausted all the time. Frankly, just her look made my blood boil and triggered me, but I also wanted to take my revenge on her. Life had already done that on my part, but I'm a jerk. I wasn't done with her. She told me about James and reopened the earlier wounds. I got my closure, which made me feel a bit better, I guess. She said she was sorry. She wasn't thinking straight what she was doing. James poisoned her mind against me. I told her I'll forgive her if she comes clean to everyone and clears my name out. She did that, losing a lot of friends, but she deserved that. My name was clean. She wanted us to date again, clear words, make me raise that jerk James's child. I told her I would agree to it, but we needed to date and marry first. Only then would I legally adopt her child. That little guy is adorable and I'd taken a liking to him. Here's the truth, I was already seeing someone. Pretty safe to say I was cheating on that woman with Reb. She was a client of mine from a different country. We were in a long distance relationship. Reb and I were living in different cities so I never moved in with her. But I played it well by saying that I needed travel for business. So I was only getting Rebecca's hopes up to crush her like she crushed me. We were getting intimate, but protection was used. Rebecca felt like she found love again. I pushed her to therapy to get her to be normal again. Everyone was commenting how she was getting more happier with me. She would praise and then say sorry, do little things for me that she used to when she was married to me. Trust me when I say, I had a lot of emotions attached to this woman. I considered my revenge if it was a good thing to break her heart. 
She might be traumatized for a lifetime, but she didn't think of my heart and we were married. Why should I think of hers? Her birthday was coming up last year in October. Lockdown was eased up and my someone, it's Lisa, was in my city. For the birthday gift, I grabbed Rebecca for ring shopping. She picked out her favorite ring and I got it wrapped. She was elated because of that. That night, she came up to me crying that she was sorry for hurting me. She looked genuinely remorseful, but I had no feelings for her except indifference. Lisa was Saladin's cousin. I already told her everything beforehand. She was against my revenge idea, but I managed to convince her somehow. She was uncomfortable with it, but understood that I needed to go through with it. On Rebecca's birthday, I drove her to our favorite spot when we were married. It's a nature's place. Lisa was already waiting there. I introduced Lisa to Rebecca. That Lisa's my girlfriend. Rebecca went white and asked me what that meant. What is she then? I introduced her to Lisa as Rebecca, my ex-wife, and friends with benefits. There and then, I proposed to Lisa with that ring. Rebecca went mad and started yelling, to which I replied, how the freak can she expect us to work out when she nuked us? I'm never dating a dirtbag like her again. She asked me again if we meant nothing. I told her nope. Sleeping with her was compensation for the pain. I got her to clear out the pain she put me through. Lisa was holding me back. She saw Rebecca was hurting. I told Rebecca that she needs to leave. She told everyone that I cheated and I was a jerk. This time I took it as a pride. Everyone saw the dirtbag she was. She cheated on me and made me pay a high price for a falsified abuse. Now she wants me to raise her kid and date her? The last we connected was in December of last year. She wrote me a letter that how much sorry she was because she can't imagine putting me through the pain that she already put me through. She hoped I live a better life. Last I heard, she was completely uninterested in dating. Looks crap. As for me, I and Lisa stopped dating. There were differences between us. I'd like to add an edit. People who are saying that I'm worse than my ex, can you please, at least for the love of God, point out how I'm worse than her? She cheated. I loved her, and she freaking cheated on me. She cost me my home, my job, my image, my reputation, my friends. I was an abuser to everyone. I gave her a taste of her own medicine. Yes, by hurting someone else. Now I'm worse than her? I don't want judgment. This is nuclear revenge, and I'm sharing my revenge stories. I may have emotionally scarred her, but that's what she did to me. So considering everything that initially went down here between OP and their wife, essentially how their wife cheated and lied about them, and how it cost OP literally just about everything, to the point where they had to give up their nice paying job and leave the city to find work elsewhere, that OP coming back to his ex-wife's life and her new kid as a single mother, and leading them on, hooking up with them, giving them hope that maybe there's a new future together. Was that justifiable for OP? Or do you think that it actually makes OP worse than their own ex was? I'd like to know what you guys think in the comments down below. All I know is hearing a story like this and hearing all the pitfalls and all the drama, all the stress, 
kind of makes me worry that in future relationships, am I going to overthink? Is a situation like this something that I should have a concern about in the back of my mind? That everything's going to fall apart and I'm going to be labeled as an abuser falsely and... Overall, basically, you can definitely say that this story is a nuclear revenge story.